Hello, my fellow Westorians. We are all high tower today. When all of Westeros, save Dorne and beyond the wall, knelt to Aegon, the Conqueror himself in turn knelt at the Starry Sept in Old Town to receive the blessing of the High Septon as the new and first Lord of the Seven Kingdoms. Though the Reach is ruled from High Garden, the center of the faith in all of Westeros was ruled by House Hightower. I say was because it's no longer the center of the faith in Westeros, though it's still very prominent in that regard. But it was the center for thousands of years and still was for a few generations after the conquest. It, it gradually shifted to King's Landing. So in this era we're discussing today, the early phase of House Hightower under the dragons, well, it's going to still be the center of the faith for that time. And with Aegon wielding so much of his... <laughs> Your arms starting to get tired there, Sean? Yes. For those listening, Sean's been holding a House Hightower sigil shirt up over the camera so you couldn't you could only see it. And again, yeah, his arms got Not tired. Not much commitment to House Hightower. <laughs> you couldn't keep it going for more than two minutes. We don't really light the way. We just light the way as long as it's convenient. It more like the, we cover the way. <laughs> we right cover there. the we cover the camera. <laughs> you make me feel guilty because I want to be loyal to House Hightower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should be. Your wife is House Hightower. It's true. Yeah, that's, that was actually not a shirt. It was a bag from her Lanes costume. Oh, it wasn't a shirt. Okay. Anyway, with Aegon wielding so much of his power through the faith and the Hightower presence at court, which includes several marriages to House Targaryen, we have a house with significant influence over the, most, the two most important powers in all the realm. But of course, it doesn't stop there. They rule the second largest city on the continent. But at this time, it was the largest city on the continent. King's Landing didn't surpass Old Town for a little while, and not in those first 45 years of its existence. So we don't actually know when King's Landing surpassed Old Town, but it wasn't this early. And they're accordingly wealthy. Not quite Lannister wealthy, perhaps. It, some estimates say they are as wealthy as the Lannisters. It doesn't really matter. They're ridiculously wealthy to a degree that we couldn't even count or fathom. And of course, there's the Citadel. They have a huge amount of influence there, too. Though it's entirely possible they wielded greater relative strength in ancient times, the era we're discussing today, the conquest to halfway through Magor's reign, was probably the peak of their power. Add it all up now. Royal influence, religious influence, financial might, control over knowledge, if not communication, because the, you know, all the ravens go through Citadel, the Citadel as well. They're trained there. And, and of course, their military strength, which we haven't mentioned yet, both in manpower and in ships. Well, we got all that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Hello and welcome, everyone. Time for another deep dive into somewhat recent history of House High Tower, one of the most powerful and prominent houses in all of Westeros, especially among those that are not technically a great house, but wield the strength and power of one. In fact, they're probably a lot more influential than, say, the Greyjoys, who are technically a great house. I think, in fact, I would wager to say that's not even a question. I'd say they definitely are more powerful, but technically they don't have that same rank. Anyway, there's a lot to discuss with them. As often is the case, I underestimate how long an episode is going to be. You'd think I'd learn, but no, no, I haven't. And I started off thinking we'd do all of the era prior to the dance in one episode. Yeah, no, not even, not even close, <laughs> not even half. <laughs> Although we do know more about this phase than we know about the latter phase, the middle phase, really. The latter phase we know a lot about because that's pre-dance and that's that's a juicy time. But we'll be discussing that one next time. This one will be focused on those early years right after the conquest. And how you doing, Sean? What's happening today for you? I see you got a green shirt. I've got a black shirt. It's kind of funny. We're not actually talking about the blacks and the greens, but my black shirt is the high tower shirt. You have a green <laughs> shirt that's the office. My green shirt's an office shirt. Yeah, an office Beatles shirt, really. <laughs> that's just a mashup, yeah. I like it. Yeah, so it's a three-way mashup without even realizing it. It's a Hightower office Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> I got to ask some of the office cast a couple of questions at the Denver Comic Con a couple of weeks ago, so it's a little extra on my mind. Hell yeah, that's cool. Let me point out that I also have a green drink here in honor of the Honorable House Hightower. <laughs> It's difficult <laughs> to have a black beverage. Like you can have it so, so dark, it looks like like actual black. Like black coffee isn't actually black. It's, it's brown, you know. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> Coke or Dr Pepper look pretty black. Yeah, it looks black. Of light it you've looks, got on it, technically but... it's brown too, right? Yeah. Anyway, this is definitely green. It's the Green Machine Naked Drink with Mountain Dew and apple juice. And peach mango bang. <laughs> oh, you've been finding your bangs. Good for you. Yeah, bangs getting back on the market there, huh? <laughs> Reappearing without the creatine advertisement. <laughs> Big shout out to Nina. Her blog is goodqueenalley with one L.tumblr.com. Her notes are in here as usual. And you're going to want to check out goodqueenalley.tumblr.com for her blog post where she answers a lot of questions and does other fun stuff. Lately, there's the most recent post is about Littlefinger and Sansa and how that's going to all work out logistically, like how the army is going to move from the Vale to the North. Like, how are they going to get there? The show, of course, just skipped over that like it often does with logistics, but it's no small thing to go from the Vale to the North, especially in winter, which it presumably won't have stopped. <laughs> winter will, it's already started, so I don't suppose it's going to let up in time for the, the Veil forces to get up there. So that's a good question. Yeah. This episode was voted on by patrons. We have a high-level vote coming up soon because we just put out our episode on Mantaris, which was for patrons and subscribers only. And we'll be voting for another scripted episode. But we have the weekly scripted, scripted episode votes as well. And next week will be part two of this one. But after that, we're going to have an episode on, drumroll please, Craster. Yes, I put, up a, <laughs> I put up a poll on villains and y'all were just like, yay, Craster. More than 50% of the vote went to Craster. I never know how these polls are going to go. Sometimes I think I have a handle on who's going to win. But y'all surprised me sometimes. That one was a surprise. I, I kind of thought people would pick Kyburn maybe, or maybe even Joffrey. 
Joffrey got like 3% of the vote. So that was not even, not even close. As bad as Joffrey is, he's not as bad as Craster. He is not as much of a villain. He may have become so if he lived long. Yeah, ago. like Joffrey had, had it in him to do way more damage than Craster, wielding power over far more people. But yeah, I can see. But also, there's no supernatural element to, to Joffrey. I think that's part of what the draw of Craster yeah. is. Like, why? There's more unanswered questions, I think, with Craster. More speculation yeah. to be had about Craster than Joffrey. Yeah, and things around him. Like, why is he doing the sacrifices? Anyway, so yeah, we'll, we'll discuss all that when the episode's up. And until then, let's talk about House Hightower. House Hightower? House Hightower under the dragons. But first, a trivia question that we will answer for you at the end. Unless you already know the answer. In which case, good for you. The question is, Magor wanted to ambush some of the faith militant by publicly executing one of their leaders via burning to death. Very pleasant. He expected more poor fellows to rescue this condemned individual. His plan was to ambush the rescuers and thus kill this condemned person and capture and kill a bunch more poor fellows. Who was this person given the death penalty bonus points if you can name the poor fellow leader who fell for this trap, which it was a successful trap. Spoiler alert. <laughs> And of course, that's something we'll be talking more about in our Fire and Blood Valoritas, which starts in only a few weeks, y'all. Getting pretty close. Also, a super chat from TKOK Podcast Network. My own nonsensical headcanon is among the many inspirations for House Hightower. Chief among them is Cadet Moses Hightower of the award-winning and beloved cinematic juggernaut that was the Police Academy franchise. (laughs) That's right. That guy that did all the... (laughs) <laughs> was it the guy that did all the voices? That we, no, no, it was the big, no, dude, I don't the think big like yeah. the, the big intimidating black guy was Hightower, right? Yeah. yeah. He was actually like really tall. I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Moses Hightower. Yeah, that dude was man, they made a lot of those movies, didn't they? Like I think there were like seven or something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a lot of police academy. It was like the big franchise of the eighties. <laughs> anyway, let's check out Ahead of their time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Check out the TKOK Podcast Network for great shows like New Dad Podcast and the Pot Moms Podcast. The Movie Club Podcast was most relevant to the Police Academy. Oh, yeah. Good point. I suppose. Good call. Good call. I think Shay and I have each been featured on that podcast. I did The Graduate with Tommy and Shay, you did Fantastic Planet, right? I did do Fantastic Planet. Aziz, meanwhile, has done New Dad Podcast. That's right. Talking about his own home life, family life. Yes. knew He had an episode where he interviewed people that don't really know their dads, like me. So, yeah. Who did it? Who don't know dad? New dad, you know? New dad, K-N-E-W. I should, yeah, new dad. I should have been on the No Dad podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this one's a slightly different format from the Northern one. The North, of course, we covered in two episodes, Under the Dragons. But it was the whole North. This is... We were able to focus on each Stark Lord in turn. Here, we're, we're more focused on the Targaryen reign. We're not going to go Hightower Lord by Lord because the Hightowers were far more closely tied to the Targaryens than the Starks ever were or have been since. The, the, the North is, in a sense, the Targaryen rule almost made the North more isolated in some ways, whereas House Hightower, almost in reverse, became more embroiled in global well, continental politics than they'd ever been before. So the full story of House Hightower, of course, much, much longer than one episode. This Under the Dragons series should take us two episodes. We'll see, but that's what I expect. Although I'm not great at these estimates. So <laughs> take that with a grain of salt or several grains of salt. 
they've always been pretty important, of course, House Hightower. But interestingly, they haven't been that big in A Song of Ice and Fire. Their role has more increased over the last 10 years, partly because, well, there's been so much time to talk about what's going to happen in A Song of Ice and Fire. And they are pretty big on the yet-to-come stage. They're like, they're on the cusp of mattering a lot. Like, we've got Euron getting ready to do stuff in Old Town. We've had chapters there. Sam's at the Citadel. Jake and Hagar, Jock and Hagar, or some faceless man is there as well. So yeah, stuff is happening there now, whereas it hasn't so much before. So it, it's not like their time has passed. In fact, their time on stage is, is still coming. But obviously, beyond that, they've gained so much more clout in the fandom because of the world of ice and fire, fire and blood, and obviously House of the Dragon has really propelled them to prominence within the community and the real world. <laughs> Out there in the real world, a lot more people have heard Hightower now than they ever have before. A lot of that is not only a lot of new material that Martin has given us about them, even if it is more rooted in the past than the, you know, the main Song of Ice and Fire series, but that material also shows you how integral they have been in the past, mm -hmm. which maybe adds to the potential relevance of them in the future. Like it, it, we could probably do entire episodes on it, but they were sort of like the Vatican mm. of the world, right? That's the a good point. Is the, it's like the center of religion is in Old Town and was for thousands of years, you know, so it's hard to measure that influence. That's a great point. And the Citadel, right? They established a Citadel, which is also like a center of learning, but not just a center of learning, but it, they send out people from there to all the other castles. Like, once again, hard to measure the, the influence that that's had over time and will continue to have. Yeah, there's probably no house that has their fingers in more important, influential, like, centers of culture or just society. What power, knowledge... Religion, <laughs> trade, yeah, just everything. There's, there's probably no one besides, because I mean, House, House Targaryen, of course, rules over all that stuff. But as far as directly influencing, it's more like, yeah, they just rule it all. It isn't like they're not in there, like making moves in this in the way. If that, House Targaryen said, "Hey, how high towers do X," and a high tower said, "You know, actually, we're gonna do the opposite of X," <laughs> House Targaryen would be scratching her head trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah. Even with dragons, it would be trouble for them if High Tower went against instead of with. What they wanted. And also their House Targaryen's influence over all this is relatively new, whereas the High Towers, even though their their situation has changed, they have the faith, the old town, the old town, the the Citadel, that's all been there for so long that a lot of it is is just has much more history to it. And history that we're not talking about today, but certainly is relevant towards why the High Towers who are who they are and why they have so much power. So starting with Aegon the Conqueror, of course. Aegon, prior to the conquest, he is said to have visited a Old Town and the Citadel prior to launching his conquest, as well as going to the Arbor. We surely wonder, did he go to the Citadel? Did he check out any books, you know? Did he look for anything to do with his dreams, anything to corroborate them or more information? Possibly. I mean, it doesn't have to have been that at all. He, he quite possibly hadn't even had the dreams yet at this point. We don't exactly know when he visited Old Town. But it certainly is interesting, and it's even more interesting because Visenya was with him, and Visenya is of the three, Rhaenys, Aegon, and Visenya. He seem, she seems to be the one, by far, the most associated with magic and the occult and things like that, although we don't know if she had any dreams of her own. So the notion that Aegon had dreams actually makes two of them <laughs> more tilted towards the supernatural, and we're, we're less sure about Rhaenys. But anyway... It's just compelling to consider not just what interactions he would have had with these old books, even though it is, as we acknowledge, possible he didn't really 
care for that at all at this time. I'm guessing he did. But how he met the high towers, he would have visited them. They would have you know, feasted, hunted, hawked, whatever, you know, how these nobles do their fancy activities. Gone on pleasure barges, sailed, the, you know, on the honey wine. I don't know what they would have done, but it's, I'm sure it was expensive. <laughs> but they would have judged each other's character. These, a lot of these things are, are theater to draw out the character of each other and for them to like make decisions about what kind of person they're dealing with here. But as well, <laughs> you have the dragons. I don't think they took ship there. This is something that will come up later, I think. Given how the Hightowers behave when the war breaks out, I'm not convinced everyone knew what they were getting into when they decided to stand up to Aegon. Did they, some of them had probably never seen Balerion. And if they had, they might have thought twice about going up against him. You know, and then his, you know, and not let alone Meraxes and Vagar. <laughs> but we know for 99% certainty that the Lord of Old Town had seen the dragons, and that may have been a big part of what came next and why they had nothing to do <laughs> with fighting against the Targaryens during the conquest. Aegon might have been pretty aware of the high towers even before he ever went there, right? Oh, yeah. They're still like the most among the most couple probably surely a lot part of why he went there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And also, even if they didn't see the dragons there, which I agree, they almost certainly did. But Old Town is probably more likely to have an understanding of the power of the dragons. That the, the level of education and history that is centered right. there is greater than you know some random small town in the middle of the north. Like even Winterfell is so separated and not really a center of learning. They might not have had the same awareness of dragons that Old Town would have had. Great point. Whether yeah. they had seen them or not, you know. Also, he supposedly visited Lannisport. So if you look at the places he visited. There seems to be like, yeah, he went to visit the population centers. He went to Old Town and Lannisport on the West Coast. are the most prominent places. He also went to the Arbor, which is important, but that's, you know, that's a, a center of wealth. So it wasn't all about going to cities, but that's still kind of, it's kind of telling, especially since he founded King's Landing not that far in the future from there. So maybe he was trying to learn a few things about how cities are made or how they're laid out or just getting into all that stuff. There's a lot of possibilities. Like we, we sh definitely shouldn't limit ourselves to just a few possibilities as to what he was doing there. Probably just let your mind run wild. All the, all the reasons he might want there to be there to suss it out, to judge the leadership, to look at how cities are made, just all these things. They, the, the list could be that plus more quite easily. I imagine he had a lot of goals in mind. I want to give him credit for where my logistical mind goes is things about a city, huge populations of people where does poop go? <laughs> How do they get water there? These are things that you, yeah. know, you don't have to worry about with a village of 100 people. When you start talking about 100,000 people, those are issues that a good leader has got to anticipate. And there were probably some books in the Citadel that described how they designed the streets and the sewage system. And I would like to think that that's something, as much as he wanted to know about some prophecy, some magical sword, if he has some plan to build a city, I hope he really learned about the infrastructure that was required. That's a great point. He could have just asked Lord Hightower, like, well, how do you do this? How do you manage this? How do you manage... Like, he just asked a bunch of questions about cities. And he would have wondered, like, Lord Hightower, in response to these questions, is like, is this guy building a city? Or what's going on? Like, why does he... You know, is he just curious? Like, he would have been very, like, piqued by those questions. Like, I wonder why... What his, what his mind is like. Because one... And, and this leads us to another topic. Like, I wonder if the Hightowers, this Lord Hightower, figured out that maybe this guy was going to make a move. He might have sussed it out that this Aegon fellow was awfully ambitious. He has a lot of... He's very put together. Like, he's smart, capable. Like, here's his badass sister with him. She's also smart and capable and dangerous. Like, 
what are they thinking here? He's thinking about cities and, and stuff like that. He might have figured it out. They're looking for knowledge. They're here, you know, like feeling us out as allies. Yeah. 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 A smart I'm enough sure Lord. anyone, yeah. So start spinning ahead on where this might go, yeah. you know. Even if it's a small chance, it's a, it's a chance that's worth being prepared for. Yeah. The idea of them kind of sizing each other up, I think it's important to consider, even if they're sort of putting on a show, right? Putting their best foot forward. That still is something to judge, right? Yes. The things that you want to show off or try to hide, even if you see through it, it's still noteworthy what they feel like they need to be presented. Mm-hmm. Someone like Balon, uh, Balon Greyjoy, even when he puts his best foot forward, you can still tell he's a jerk. You know what I mean? You can still <laughs> yeah. tell he's not really you can't with hide that plan yeah. or what. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be like Robert trying to hide his penchant for alcohol. Like, no, yeah, there's, there's no yeah. hiding that. We can know. see what this guy's about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, and they, they, you know, like Marjorie and then uh, Elena, kind of trying to question Sansa about what's going on. They kind of knew. They were really looking for confirmation. They knew Joffrey was. A you're problem, right. They you were know? asked. Their questions were leading. Yeah, they had already. Yeah, you're right. They weren't looking for and, and, information. And the things that Sansa didn't tell was giving him the answers they really wanted. The fact right? that she didn't want to like talk bad about Joffrey said everything. Yeah. Yes, you're totally right. Like. So you can imagine there'd be some of that. The things that, that, that Aegon or the High Towers or whoever, even the things that they were sneaky or quiet about is still telling. Yeah, because these are people who have wielded immense power for so long. His dad taught him like the proper ways not to screw it up and all these things and going back ad nauseum through prior generations. Yeah, I, I wonder too if Aegon was wondering if the Lord of the High Tower was, was like out of touch or... You know, way up because we we hear that about the current Lord Hightower. Like that's a, an idea floated about him. It's not confirmed, but people say that he hasn't descended from the Hightower in ten years, which is like, whoa, that's that's wild to think about. <laughs> you know, and it's what kind of effect does that have on your personality and your you know, like your all your information comes from what people are telling you, and yeah. Or maybe some of your information comes from glass candles. Ooh, yeah, that's true. They do have those in Old Town, so... You, you, know. might, you might not be quite as removed from what's going on as people think. Good point, good point. So either way, the high tower is way up there. And, you know, whether that makes you more aloof or more paranoid or more worldly or some combination of the above. Anyway, it's going to have an effect on your character one way or the other. So the conquest, the histories tell us that Lord Manfred Hightower was the man in charge when the conquest began. This may have been the same lord that met Aegon and Visenya when they came through. We don't know when that was. We assume it wasn't a huge gap, but we also don't know when the previous Lord Hightower died. Now, we do have a good whole handle on who all the Lords Hightower were going forward until the reign of Jaehaerys when there's more peace and less specificity there. But anyway, Manfred would have been present for Aegon's visits, even if he wasn't Lord. So he knew, he would have seen the dragon just like his father did, the dragons, because he would have been around 34 at least. This was the youngest Lord Manfred could have been when the conquest began was 34. More likely he was in his 40s. So yeah, he would, either way, he would have the information his father had, or he was the one to collect it initially. Now one of his younger sons, Lord Manfred, was already in the warrior's sons. And another of his sons was already a septon, And he had at least two other sons, one named Adam and one named Garmin. He also had at least three daughters. And we're told he was a godly man. Now, we should always take Hightower history with a grain of salt because these are the, like, history is written by the winners is a thing or history is written by victors. Now, that's, you know, you can't take that. There's more nuance to that saying than on the surface. 
But here, it's particularly true because these are powerful people. They're often the winners and they literally like control the people writing the history. So it's even more direct than it is in like, not just recent history. Like a lot of times a dynasty will write the history of something and then the next dynasty will write a, like a corrective thing and maybe the truth lies somewhere between. But how Hightowers have ruled the Citadel effectively or through influence for thousands of years and they haven't, that's never really shifted away from them. So It hasn't been a break for someone else to like cut through the bias yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So one thing I wrote a note for myself when we were doing, when doing my, my research and reading for this episode was like, I doubt I'm going to find a lot of critical takes on House Hightower. I'm having trouble <laughs> saying that name. House Hightower and any of the histories because they're all written at the Citadel. And I mean, yeah, I, that, that seems to be true. So we might have to just insert some criticism. Imagine that these guys and gals are probably... Some negative things about them have probably been omitted. Probably. Like if you were to write a top 10 list of houses most likely to receive positive source bias, Hightowers would probably be number one, <laughs> even more than the Targaryens. <laughs> but still, it's believable that this Lord Hightower was godly, given his actions. Now, it's pretty easy and common, I think, for like a Lord to make all the right noises and pretend to be faithful and all that stuff. But this guy seems to... I kind of get the sense this guy was genuine. But we'll see. Your, your mileage may vary. Let's go through it. Now, you know, yeah, go ahead. Can I say another thing here? Is that given what we just said, right? That, that there would be certain biases in the history that's written and maintained. And it's been that way for thousands of years. There are some people who might... But not just some people. Most people probably just... Believe it. Yeah, they do. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Not, like, so, so if a, a high tower child is born and raised and studies at Citadel, there's like, they're not necessarily being dishonest about the history. It's just what was taught to them their whole life and everyone else their whole life. Mm -hmm. Like, whatever the truth is, it's not necessarily this evil bias of the high towers that cover up the. See, it's just what everyone has learned and believes. You You're know? totally right. It's it, effectively just his truth. It's know? a two way street. The house, house, God, I really can't say it. House high tower has a strong influence over the faith. It's a two-way street. The faith is a strong influence over House Hightower. You're totally right. So I, I totally believe that some of these lords are very devout because that proximity to the faith, you're right, it's a two-way street. They live near the center of Westerosi worship of the faith of the seven. So yeah, of course, it could rub off in a, in a non-cynical way, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, the list of Hightower lords influenced by the High Septon would be Massive, like the High Septon would know where to go to influence. <laughs> like, well, we know who the powerful <laughs> ones in this city are. Let's, and a lot of times the High Septon, maybe not a lot of times, but uh, often there have been several cases where the High Septon literally is a high tower. I mean, there you go. That, and not just high towers, but the most devout, who are the the highest rank. They're like the archbishops, the equivalent, or the cardinals, and a lot of them are often high towers. So, this is a little bit. Hazy, because as we know, High Septons aren't called by their original name, which I wonder if the High Towers, it's just now occurring to me that maybe they're part of the reason that <laughs> that's done, that, that policy was implemented to hide how many High Towers are, are, <laughs> are in this organization. In fact, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I like that. Anyway. And even aside from High Towers, to hide whoever was in charge, because some certain, like, you know, if, I don't know if they made a Blackwood. The High Septon. There's some people who don't like the Blackwoods. And yeah. so they're like, oh, he's not really a Blackwood. He's, yeah. <laughs> it's also not, it's like there's precedent for that in the real world too. The 
popes and kings often just change their name once they get that position. So it looks like the, in the scenario we're dealing with right now, the beginning of the conquest, it looks like Manfred Hightower was one of those lords that was influenced by the High Septon rather than the other way around. Like who had more power in this two-way street relationship? In this case, it looks like the High Septon had more power. Although you can't be certain. But here's the quote to kick us off on that. When word of Aegon's landing first reached Old Town, the High Septon had locked himself within the Starry Sept for seven days and seven nights, seeking after the guidance of the gods. He took no nourishment but bread and water, it was said, and spent all his waking hours in prayer, moving from one altar to the next. And on the seventh day, the crone had lifted her golden lamp to show him the path ahead. If Old Town took up arms against Aegon the dragon, his high holiness saw the city would surely burn, and the high tower and the citadel and the starry sept would be cast down and destroyed. Manfred Hightower, lord of Old Town, was a cautious lord and godly. One of his younger sons served with the warrior's sons, and another had only recently taken vows as a septon. When the high septon told him of the vision vouchsafed him by the crone, Lord Hightower determined that he would not oppose the conqueror by force of arms. Thus it was that no men from Old Town burned on the field of fire, though the High Towers were bannermen to the gardeners of High Garden. So it's awfully convenient. It happened. The vision came on the seventh day, the whole, you know, seven days, obviously for the seven. So this is like, this sounds very engineered, but I, I'm with it. I mean, you really shouldn't go out there and stand against the trail. Like, yeah, like common sense says you would lose this, this battle slash war. So, yeah, they needed a cover story. They needed an excuse, and this was it, right? (laughs) I imagine that as much as that seven days, it probably didn't take seven hours for them to be like, all right, we're not trying to fight the dragons, right? No, of course not. Okay, well, like, how do we pitch this to the people? How do we deal with the Targaryens? How do we, you know, they they, they were probably planning details of what they knew right away was going to happen. That's what I expect. Yeah. It's still, and because they have to go against their liege lords, like they have to not support the gardeners who had ruled the reach for a long time. And like with Garth the gardener and Garth Greenhand, like all this, they really, as we've discussed in other episodes, there was little challenge to their rule. The gardeners were just the pinnacle of reach culture and, and heritage. And there was really no, no one else even close. So not backing them was a really big deal. Nina writes it as a, a crisis of faith. Like, not only is it the gardener liege lord, but the gardeners are practice this worship of the seven for thousands of years, whereas Aegon hadn't yet, like, publicly converted to the faith. He, or maybe he had sent missives out that he was going to, but until he knelt at the starry sept to receive a blessing of the high septon, well, they didn't know he was going to do that. They didn't know he was, would have done that. So they, they couldn't have seen this coming specifically. I mean, even if he had done that, you got to imagine it's still a little suspicion, yeah, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Uh, sure, he did that, but I mean, he just showed up, right? Like, yeah, they're, they're still, they would still want to make plans. They'd have questions to ask. They know it's going to be a, a, a shift in everything, the way things have been. And it makes sense that they would want some time to send some ravens out, to ask some questions, to get their ducks in a row before this 
before this change comes. And he has a responsibility to the people of Old Town, too. I mean, yeah, he's like, well, I want to protect my house's power, but these two things are very tied together. Like, if Old Town falls, mm-hmm. a lot of innocent people are going to die. It isn't just going to be, we all surrender and, and no one is, suffers. You know, we just, no, no. <laughs> Especially not according to the dream. <laughs> according to the dream, the yeah. star step, Old Town, all of that would burn. So, yeah, so if they put that out there, that the high septum had this dream, people will believe that. And they're like, yeah, well, do the, you don't want to walk right into that. Sure, yeah, well, let's not fight the dragons. And given the way things went, like the aftermath only justified their decision. The field of fire wiped out all the gardeners. I mean, it was worse than they probably could have guessed. So they're like, well, that, and that was a silver lining for them because they didn't have to face any sort of, you know, justice from House of the Gardeners saying, hey, why weren't you there? <laughs> you know, why didn't you help us? You, you betrayed your liege lords. Well, now there's, they skirted that issue entirely. And the Tyrells had been named Lords of Highgarden. So that's like, all right, well, yeah, we have, we answer to them, if anyone, and the Tyrells are fully in Aegon's court. So they're not going to take action against the High Towers for not supporting when they've already bent the knee. So that worked out as well as it could have, really. <laughs> Once again, it makes me wonder if that was something they were plotting through those seven days. Like, yes. we got to make sure the Targaryens take out all the high towers. we got to make the sure there's not an heir, there's no repercussion. Oh, Gardner. Which they, right. yeah, like, I don't think they could have engineered for that. They were like, what do we do? Like, if, hopefully they bend the knee and there's no pushback against us. But yeah, it just worked out probably better than it could have because they, they couldn't have known all those gardeners would get wiped out. Although Aegon may have intentionally been trying to wipe out all the gardeners. That's something I... Yeah, like, yeah. It, the, and they the might have sent letters and, to... Yeah, they might have sent letters to High Garden to say, "All the gardeners need to mobilize. Make sure you guys are united <laughs> front. Everyone needs to be in that battlefield to face these." Yeah, through some <laughs> intermediary, like it wouldn't just be from the yeah. High Tower. Yeah, but yeah, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> so that's a pretty big deal to think about that. And Nina makes a similar point to you did you as well. Not just seeing the dragons, but having read the books about them and how devastating mm-hmm. they are. Which is these rest of these Reach Lords, the gardeners, everyone else would not necessarily have deigned to read their histories. Let alone, again, as we said, already not physically not having met the dragons in person, which alone is a way to change your mind. House Tyrell, regarding them, while the High Tower in Old Town would remain a vassal of Highgarden, this is a point of pride. We've talked about that, how Aegon did this on purpose to kind of neutralize the reach against him. They would be more concerned with infighting by appointing someone who had been the High Stewards above them all. They would, they would wrangle and, and not like that. And be like, ah, oh, those high stewards are above us now. We're not happy about that. So the high towers would be amongst those lords, perhaps the most prominent amongst the lords, saying we don't, we don't love this new state of affairs. But what are they going to do about it? They bent the knee to Aegon. The field of fire was lost. You know, they, <laughs> there's not much they can do in this case other than just go along with it. I can imagine them being okay with it too. Like, you know what? We still have the step. We still have the citadel. We're still the biggest, richest city. As you go, yeah. That's true. Aren't you cute, Tyrell? You think you're in charge? That's nice. Yeah, go, you go ahead and do that. You're right. You're right. At, that's a good point because the Tyrells wouldn't be able to wield as much authority over them, even with even though they're the same rank technically as the gardeners without that prestige and history. Like, yeah, the high towers could they can't summon and as much they help. won't be yeah. and they won't be called on as directly right. yeah. for, to send soldiers off to battle or whatever else the Targaryens want to do. Like, yeah, Tyrells, you go be their stooges. We're just gonna keep doing what we've been doing for thousands of years. Not to mention the Tyrells were slash Highgarden was severely weakened after the Field of Fire. They just lost Mm -hmm. a lot of soldiers, so there's that too. Regardless of how Lord Manfred felt or what he thought he wanted to do, this is what he actually did. Quote, 
Lord Manfred rode forth to greet Aegon the dragon as he approached and to offer up his sword, his city, and his oath. Some say that Lord Hightower also offered up the hand of his youngest daughter, which Aegon declined politely, lest it offend his two queens. Three days later, in the Starry Sept, His High Holiness himself anointed Aegon with the seven oils, placed a crown upon his head, and proclaimed him Aegon of House Targaryen, the first of his name, King of the Andals, the Rhoynar, and the First Men, Lord of the Seven Kingdoms, and Protector of the Realm. I wonder what the seven oils actually are. Like, what are the each individual oil? It was like crone oil, stranger oil, <laughs> maiden oil. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> CBD oil. <laughs> now I was thinking olive oil, peanut oil. <laughs> I don't know. Do they have oil. peanuts in Westeros? They do have olives. I don't know if they have well, peanuts. They, they, they have peanuts when they find the new world, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> So that would have been an interesting three days. It says three days later in the Starry Steps, His High Holiness himself anointed Aegon. Like, what were they talking about in those three days? Just, I'm sure it wasn't simply just, how many people do we invite for the coronation? Where does everyone stand? That would be part of it because <laughs> these, you know, they care about these ceremonies and stuff. But there would have been other negotiations behind the scenes, certain concessions or requests or certain things that would need to be settled behind closed doors to make sure everything is smooth and to make sure, you know, a lot of power is changing hands here. A lot is happening. And there would be, need to be assurances and, and diplomacy. Just a lot of things going on. Even things that aren't necessarily cynical maneuvering for power, there would have been like legit concerns about like this shipment of grain is going to this village. Yeah. These people will starve to death if it doesn't get there. Can you make sure we had to send troops here? Or your dragons might be flying. Is this village safe? You know, I can imagine. And times... You know, 20 villages. I, I can imagine some very legit concerns of the people and logistics. Even if behind that, they just want to make sure they can collect those taxes. <laughs> Even if there's a cynical reason behind it, there probably were still a lot of maneuvering to maintain peace and safety of the people. Yeah. Now, this marriage offer, highly interesting. I love how it said Aegon declined politely. Like, no, Aegon declined rudely. Like, get your daughter out of my face. No. <laughs> but it's interesting to compare that towards, say, what happened with the Dance of the Dragons, where two qu- offending the two queens, you say. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Upsetting both your queens and causing a civil war. Yeah. Aegon had be- was smarter than Viserys and had better advisors, most likely. Nina points out that Aegon had a difficult position to navigate here, too. I mean... It would have been, you can see why Aegon might have wanted to accept taking a third wife and been like, lock up House Hightower in his corner when he's trying to establish power over the entire realm. You can see why he might want a marriage alliance with House Hightower, even though, as he says here, apparently he doesn't want to offend his two queens. Like his queens would understand if it was for power, I think. So maybe that's, an, maybe that's, maybe there's other reasoning going on here, but, but maybe not. Maybe they would be offended. I don't know. And not to mention, you might, as much as you might find an alliance with Old Town Duanette, you might find a rival in Old Town Duanette. Yeah. And the, the Faith is not going to be happy about a third one. Two is bad enough. Yeah, you know, so. you're right. Two is bad enough. And a third one, he can't say, I'm not allowed to have a third one. Like, that's obviously not true. <laughs> it's like two, but not three. And I know you, you're in a polygamous marriage. Like, And we know that this is, we have the Citadel here in our town. We know y'all have had more marriages than that. You know, we know, we know you're history. (laughs) So, 
Yeah, he, he might not have wanted to boost the high towers that high. He might want to have kept them at arm's length a bit. There's a lot of reasons why. Also, there's apparently there's a chance this didn't even happen, although I suspect it did. The way the high towers are and the way a lot of houses are, ambition is just a currency for them. It's so common that, of course, they're going to take their shot at marrying into the royal family. You know, like, well, couldn't hurt to ask. And it, no, it, did, it didn't hurt to ask. He declined politely. <laughs> he probably expected it. He probably was completely unsurprised by the offers. Like, yep, here it comes. Here comes the marriage offer. I've gotten lots of these. <laughs> so that, of course, is a tried and true method of power and influence is advantageous marriages. Now, you, would, you could argue that the, it's very desirable to marry into the Hightower family. There's plenty of other families that would jump at the chance. And, of course, the same is true for House Targaryen. Now, in this case, it's a matter of who benefits more from it. And I think Aegon decided that it would be more of a boon to the High Towers than it would be to him and his family, and, and might be more worthwhile to keep these things open. We've also noticed how often it is that the High Towers have large families. This is partly a factor of you can have larger families when you have absurd amounts of wealth. You can afford it. Kids are not cheap, you know, in any timeline or setting, really. So in some ways, that's why there's so many of them. Recall that this Lord Manfred had at least seven children minimum, and Lynesse, Jorah's ex-wife, was the 10th child of her siblings. She was the 10th. So it's crazy how many, <laughs> so many kids, right? Now, jumping ahead just for a second, it's possible that Donald the Delayer, a lord we'll discuss in the next episode, Lord Hightower, is one of these other seven children, or beyond seven because he was born around 17 AC. And uh, yeah, so this is all ha about halfway through Aegon's reign is AC 17. So yeah. Mm. You know, it, you make me... I, I'm, I'm trying to compare Hightower to Frey because mm -hmm. they're also like a large family, yeah. but they seem to have diminished their value or their prestige where the high towers do not have, or at least not as much have. Is it new for Frey to have a big family like that? Is that something Walter put into action or have they always been that way? They're a little not, they're younger as a house. Their house has only existed for about 600 years. So they don't have a huge long history. And yes, they were considered more upstarts early on. So like the first century was them just kind of getting bigger and spending, re reinvesting their money into the castle. It used to be just be a wooden bridge and they made their money off the tolls. And over time, they spent the money to make it a stone bridge. And then the two wooden keeps on either side were stone casts. So they were reinvesting in themselves early on. And then eventually, they became powerful and wealthy. And yeah, the Tyrells are a good example, though, as well. Song of Ice and Fire. They're, they're maybe the second largest family that we know of in current times. The Freys are pretty clearly the largest in terms of like a lord with the most children. Uh, so it's another example of a house that uses sheer quantity of family members to gain power and standing. There's so many of them that can hold office. You know, it has different... There's so many of them that you can put here and there. Like the Tyrells, they've got city... Like old town... They got the city watch captains and maesters and they wanted to send the new master of coin up. And there's so many, right? And Cersei just like hates this. It bothers her. Whereas Tywin was just like, mm -hmm. well, we just got to lean into it. And like, well, let's be allies with them and make this part of our strength, right? You know? Yeah, he's like, we can't fight that, so let's let's make it ours. Like, it's better to do that. So maybe this is some of part of Aegon's thinking as well, but he had a different calculus than these houses that are not at the top. He's a 
the new king with Balerion. He doesn't have the same considerations as Rob Stark, who needs to cross the river. So he's like, all right, I'll agree to a marriage. Yeah, Aegon wasn't, you know, wasn't forced into anything here. He had all the, all the power in terms of violence and, and standing like that. So as well, let us recall, there's no King's Landing yet. Again, this keeps coming up. It's super important to consider. One very likely conversation that was held in Old Town while he was there is, where are you going to rule the kingdom from? Where's your capital? Are you going to rule from Dragonstone? Have you considered making your throne here in Old Town? Have you considered making the capital here? He probably had. He may have already decided not to. He may, but this may have been when that decision was made. He may have heard them all out. He's like, okay, tell me your reasons for doing it here or doing it elsewhere. It might have been a really big deal, like people trying to argue for or against it. There might be some forces, some powers that be within, even maybe some of the high towers might have wanted it, some others may not. A lot of considerations. A new royal family, there's nothing like this has existed in Westeros before. It might be good for them to keep that power close to them, but they might not want that power to overshadow their own in their city. They might see themselves getting squeezed out. So I, I'm not sure which meant more to them, but it's, it's a very huge consideration, r- regardless of where you fall with your guesses on what the Hightowers might have seen as a possible future here. Because you really could see it both ways, right? It's kind of a conundrum. Like, what would they have wanted? Would they have wanted the king to have his throne there? Or would they not have? I, I'm not sure, but I, I, there's a lot of pros and cons. It's a pretty interesting decision. I bet that the cons outweighed the pros. Even though there were a lot of pros, I bet the cons outweighed it. Based on that and a couple things, what actually happened? I think if they had really wanted it, if the, the pros had been strong enough, they would have made it happen. Yeah. And it, we would have heard more of a story of why it did or didn't. Yeah, right? yeah. And also just thinking about in the real world, for example, Washington, D.C. was just kind of carved out rather than, you know, we kind of bounced the capital around like early American history, like Philadelphia, New York, whatever. But eventually they chose like sort of a neutral spot. Yeah. And there was a lot of negotiation around that. But I'm, mm. I'm sure that, I'm sure if it was better for New York to it have been in New York, they would have made that happen. But they didn't. They were like, ah, do it somewhere else. Let us yeah. keep our own thing going here. We don't want you to interfere or take from us. Rather than know? one state having undue amount of power. Yeah, and they did. And that, that's a really good example. I wrote a, a video for In Deep Geek on why it's called the Seven Kingdoms. And I made a similar point. Like, the crown land, Aegon created the crown lands, which is the royal fief for, for his lands, you know, to, to taxes and soldiers and all that. And it was a new carve out. And it's kind of like DC. DC, Washington, DC isn't part of any of the 50 states, nor is it a state itself. The crown lands isn't really a kingdom, but it is a carve out that isn't part of another kingdom. So it is, it's kind of a similar thing in that sense. The crown lands is a lot larger relatively than Washington, DC, but it's still, it's a, it's a, it works as a parallel there. So by the same token, if there's forces in Old Town, High Towers, and maybe other people arguing for the capital to be put there or not, there might be people from the Crown Lands that, you know, in Aegon's entourage that are like arguing against that. They're like, no, you should build it back where close to your seat of power, Dragonstone, do back up there. Like, that's where you should be. So there, there would be forces arguing for it to be near them as well. Like, like Duskendale and, and Rosby and places like that. They may have also had similar considerations. Like some people want it there, some people don't. Yeah, a little, a little column A, a little column B. You're going to ruffle a lot of people's feathers. A lot of people are going to feel like, why not us, right? You're going to make this one family, this one town, very happy. 
assuming you even are actually making them happy yeah. and make 20 other houses jealous and frustrated mm-hmm. or like, all right, like none of you. We're just going to make our own little spots. Yeah. You know? And that, that is what happened. And so that, that in the short term, I, you got to wonder what the Hightower thought of that. In the long term, well, that's another huge population center for them to trade with. Might be a good thing. So they can get ahead of it. They can yeah. get ahead of establishing trade routes and like, send some carpenters over there. Yes. Let's make sure we're the ones building those buildings and setting up those trade Getting routes. Getting that inside there. track. Yes, you're right. So they would, yeah. they would see that opportunity, which is one of many of the possible opportunities. I mean, we've got a new power structure being built a new, entirely new Seven Kingdoms and this house, the Hightowers, who were very practiced and experienced with wielding and holding power and gaining power, they would see the opportunities that come with a giant new power structure being built over everything. They would want to be a part of that. Speaking of the change in Westeros, a massive change that would be a huge boon for House Hightower, along with most of the West Coast of Westeros, would be the end of the old way. Aegon shut that down hardcore by invading them directly. Balerion's flames had a bit to do with it. Lord Vicon Greyjoy was named new Lord of the Iron Isles. They had like a little Lord's moot there. Aegon allowed them to choose and they chose the Greyjoy. And he famously told his son, don't be stupid. Don't fight against the dragons. <laughs> you know, we're particularly vulnerable. Yo, we have ships. Those things burn, you know? We really cannot go against them. You know, bravery cannot, uh, you can't be brave enough. It's not going to matter. <laughs> like, bravery will not carry us here. As best as we know, this is something we covered in our episode on the Red Kraken in pre-dance era, which he, he, he's not going to be born for another 100 years or so. But that's when the old way fell, uh, returned under the dance because those laws were no longer enforced. So shutting down the old way would have been huge for Western trade. Just no more piracy, except, you know, there'd be a few holdouts that didn't obey the law. But this would be a giant change from, like, state-sanctioned piracy to the state made it illegal, right? That's a huge difference for them. So, like, trade's going to flow. A lot more, like, smaller-scale merchants could get going. They would not have to worry as much about having their ship stolen and their entire livelihood lost to a, a random pirate. Just massive change in the outlook for the city. That's something that everyone, pretty much everyone in Old Town would be thrilled about. Assuming they realized it or assuming it was relevant to them, which to a lot of them it would be. And of course, Lannisport, same deal for them. They're even closer to the Iron Islands. It might have mattered even more to them. The royal house whore dynasty that built Harrenhal and was ruled the Iron Islands before Aegon came, they were more concerned with land-based stuff than prior Ironborn, which, which you could say, oh, then they probably didn't read as much rate. No, that, that probably means that they didn't care. That probably meant that the Iron Islanders back home were let to do whatever they wanted, which, well, leave Ironborn to do what they want and they will go raiding. <laughs> so it's pretty simple, I think. <laughs> and it's not just the implications in that region. This is a global impact on trade, right? It would be just ships from Essos would also be like, hmm, not so, not as dangerous as it used to be over there. Like the journey is still really far. Sailing south of Dorne is still a little bit perilous, but a, a massive difference in the outlook. And you know, if you're considering it as like, well, is this worth it? It might completely change it from not worth it to worth it. And the people in charge of the High Tower, Lord Manfred, his court, his entourage, people—they would. There's no way they didn't fail to notice this or see this coming. They would be aware of that change. Like, oh, you shut down the Ironborn, did you? Hell yeah. <laughs> That's great. So they just, the rich get richer. <laughs> but also some of the people who aren't rich got a little richer too. 
one of the ways the rich are getting richer is through this increased stability. Yeah. Which also means the poor get richer and safer. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it's a this is a and, rising and, and, tide lifts all boats kind of thing, pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Except for the iron board. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except for the ones with the boats. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Except for the pirates. Like it, it seems to me that generally speaking, the people that were like more receptive to this were the people that depended on trade and or were thinking forward about the future and or actually cared about their people. Someone like the Ironborn are short-sighted and don't care about people, and you know they just want to take stuff now. But Old Town centered around trade, you know the Lannisport, like all these other people were like, we could either have this strife and this conflict and this destruction, or we could have security and stability and peace and like it, it's almost like an easy decision you yeah, know like yeah. even without the dragon there's a lot to be said I mean, the dragon makes it more obvious yes. right or dragons make it more obvious but even without that it seems like in the long run the more established and i'm going to say forward thinking or or i want to say moral that's not quite the right word i want to use but like at the point where they're making decisions beyond like attack and don't start right? yeah. <laughs> at the point where you're making decisions about how do we make our land better prepared for winter? How do we make our trade routes more safe with other entities? You know, the, those people are like, yeah, of course we've been in a need. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah absolutely. You put our pride and ego aside. You yeah, know? you're right. They, they would have seen the benefits. They'd be like, well, yeah, I could see how this would go badly for us, but the benefits are so strong. Like the, the negatives would have really have to be bigger than we think they are for this not to be a windfall for them. And in terms of influence at court, so of course they would want to make sure things stayed favorable to them. They would want to be like, yeah, let's make sure tax policies, this and that. Maybe not a huge deal under Aegon's reign because Aegon, his policy was to mostly let the individual regions carry on as they had before without codifying the laws. There, That eventually became a problem and other kings had to deal with that, mostly Jaehaerys. But he dealt with it by not dealing with it. By like, let's let this transition be a little slower. We're not going to force all this change at once. Or maybe he just didn't see the benefit to it. Either way, his first small council didn't include any high towers that we know of. It's possible there were the masters of coin. His first two masters of coin are complete unknowns. There's a, there's a chance there was a high tower in there somewhere. Those super rich houses always seem to have the inside track on the master of coin job. Although there's obviously exceptions like Littlefinger. <laughs> No Kingsguard that we know of either until Gerald Hightower. And that's way later, obviously, at the White Bull. Queen Rhaenys did arrange the betrothal of one of the Tarth triplets. There was Tarth triplet girls born around this time. And one of those three married a Hightower son, which, again, there's so many Hightower kids. We don't know which Hightower kid this was. But that's something that the Iron Throne did a lot of early on was make these, was doing a lot of marriage brokering across kingdom lines that normally weren't done. Like usually houses married within their own region because, well, the, these other regions were like separate countries to them and there wasn't as much to be gained in alliances with houses that are halfway across the continent. Well, here, that's exactly what they were trying to make happen. The Iron Throne was doing that. You wonder if they tried to involve themselves in any other high tower marriages and if there was any sort of logic behind Tarth specifically as another island holding on the other side of the continent. Maybe. There may have been some specific thinking here, or maybe they were just trying to make as many matches as they could from houses and that were didn't share a kingdom. And Lord Manfred's fortunes, as good as all these things were, we talked about all these obvious benefits. We talked about why they probably engineered that vision 
because <laughs> it just all seems so engineered because they, like you said, Sean, like the benefits to this arrangement are just so obvious, but they don't want to look like cowards and they don't want to go against the faith. So like, how do we do this just right? <laughs> but they know what their end goal is. Bow to this new king and reap the rewards of it. And in long term, arguably they did. But in the short term, there were some big setbacks. What looked like the great path forward had some serious bumps in the road. And those ro- and that road ran right through Dorne. The invasion of Dorne began in 4 AC. Two things of immediate interest come to mind here. One, having so many children. We talked about how that's an advantage when you're marrying. You can marry, make so many marriage alliances. Occasionally, it's, it backfires because of entangling alliances, like what happens with, say, the phrase or some of these other cases. Or when your liege is like, you, it's time for war and you have to send... 10 children off to war or five, like you would rather not have so many children at war at once. Two, the issue of pride and the new Tyrell lordship. Like you have this Lord Harlan Tyrell leading the Reach armies into Dorne. Would the high towers be like chafing under having their soldiers led by a Tyrell? Maybe not. Maybe I make too much out of that. But we do hear that there was chafing under Tyrell leadership and the high towers is, are the most prestigious house in the Reach even more so than the Tyrells at this point. So if anyone's pride is ruffled, it's a good place to start is with the high towers. You're more likely to have that chafing the more people are involved. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Some of it is going to depend on the personalities of the people involved or whatever. Yes. So if you have two sons and they're both like reasonable, even-keeled, educated, you know... But if you have seven sons and one of them is a loud mouth, arrogant, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that guy's going to get his ruffles, his, his ruffles feathered. His ruffles feathered, <laughs> yes. <laughs> if there was ruffled pride, pride ruffled here, then it would have gotten worse given how things went in Dorne. Like they wouldn't have looked and like, well, he sure did a good job with losing the entire army in the desert, <laughs> you know, because that is what happened. This is that lord. This is the scorpion canopy lord that was killed this way. So there were probably high tel- high, high, I did it again, high tower soldiers in this host. It was a large host. And I can't imagine the high towers didn't supply any of it. It was like, 30, it was like 20, 30,000 men. Like none of them came from Old Town. That seems super unlikely. There's probably like officers and lesser lordlings in that host. And they all just, as we'll see shortly, they just all died. And this is also a host that struggled through the prince's past. It was brutal and, and difficult. And then the desert itself, before getting to Hellhole, before everyone vanished in the desert. So it was bad before it got worse. And the high towers that were in that host would have you know, suffered along with the rest. So what happens, of course, since the Dornish didn't fight back the way that Westerosi normally do, they engaged in guerrilla warfare and ambushes and all this stuff. Aegon decided, okay, we won. They, we went to Sunspear, no one stopped us. So that means we won, right? No, but... For a while, that's what they told people. <laughs> and of course, he appointed a variety of non-Dornish lords to rule Dorne. Apparently, none of them were high towers. Good for the high towers, because that obviously didn't go well. Like, all of them were murdered. So the high towers escaped that fate. So that phase of the war maybe wasn't too bad for the high towers. Maybe it was, because of the soldiers, the unnamed soldiers that we still know about. The second phase of the war was definitely terrible for House Hightower. During the progression of this war, another item of note is the creation of the position of Grand Maester. That position didn't exist before, of course. Why would it have? There was no central royal court. Of course, this is right up the High Towers alley. They already have this huge influence over the citadel. The Grand Maester is chosen by the Archmaesters, 
if you think that the Lord of the High Tower isn't going to like stick his finger in this voting process, well, I've got a bridge to sell you. I mean, certainly some of them probably <laughs> didn't. Some of them probably didn't care, but there's, if they wanted to influence the choice, they probably did, right? And they may have even came up with the idea of this position. Like, you know, we need, we need, we need a maester, a, a maester above the other maesters to advise the king. We've got one for all the lore. Like, this, someone had this idea. It may have come from the high towers. It maybe just came straight from the citadel. Like, that makes sense. But could have been a joint creation of the two, you know? Wherever the idea came from, and however genuine or unbiased different leaders would try to be, there would still be this passive influence yep. coming through all of it, right? right. There, there still would be... Old Town and the Citadel are still so tied together that even if someone else came up with the idea of someone else, someone from the Citadel should be the Grand Maester, and whoever's in charge of Old Town said, you guys decide, I don't want any part of it. That there's still people in the Citadel that are going to be and have been their whole life influenced by Old Town. Yeah. <laughs> even people trying their best to be genuine and stay out of it and do whatever's best, just do the right thing. There will still be this influence. And, and you know, there's not everyone being purely <laughs> step back, genuine, honest about yeah. it. So I guess this would have happened around the same time when Aegon declares victory over Dorne is around the same time the position of Grand Maester was created. And that's also when Dorne erupted. So like basically when Aegon gets back to King's Landing, maybe meets his new Grand Maester, just as that's happening, Dorne rises up, murders all the people appointed to rule over them and kicks out slash murders the garrisons held, put to rule over them. That's when Lord Tyrell moved out of the Hellhole, his army vanishes, and then four or five more years later, this is going to have consequences because the Hellhole is going to be more f the site of more failure for the Iron Throne. In 10 AC, Lord Fowler emerged from the Prince's Pass to attack Nightsong, the, the, the castle Nightsong, and captured it. Lord Manfred of, you know, the Hightower Lord not is kind of far from Night Song, but not so far that he apparently had some responsibility here. He dispatched his heir, Sir Adam, with a large army to retake it. And it was a huge failure. By the time Sir Adam arrived with his army, the castle had already been burned. All the nobles had been taken hostage, and Lord Fowler had returned to Dorne already. He was already back through the Prince's Pass. Meanwhile... This appeared to be maybe a, a, a feint or an arranged maneuver because as these troops were drawn off to Nightsong, Lord or Sir Joffrey Dane emerges from the Red Mountains, presumably from some secret passes because it's not the Prince's Pass or the Boneway. There must be some way. There's a lot of mountains between Starfall and Old Town. There's got to be some ways through. And if you're a local, you might know the ways. They might have... Don't, yeah, Shay's got the map up if, you, if you're watching on video or watching the video elsewhere, looking at the map yourself, you can see it's, it's, uh, there's no obvious way through, but there is a way through, clearly, because that's what happened here. So they pillaged the surrounding towns and farms. They didn't have enough manpower to take Old Town itself, which is not surprising. Old Town is a severe and large place, and this is an army that emerged from the mountains, so it's, you know, it's not a giant host. But Lord Manfred had to do something. He couldn't just allow this host to run around and destroy the countryside. So he dispatched his other, one of his other sons. This was Garmin. And Garmin went to confront Sir Joffrey. Now, but remember, most of the army of Old Town was away at Nightsong. So Sir Joffrey Dane did not turn and run. 
Instead, he faced the high tower sortie. Quote, Old Town's walls proved too strong for the Dornish to overcome. The Dane burned fields, farms, and villages for 20 leagues around the city and slew Lord Hightower's younger son, Garmin, when the boy led a sortie against him. So apparently, Joffrey slew Garmin personally, which, I mean, that's pretty nasty. So this is just when they thought they were done with raiding, right? The Ironborn are, are cut off from raiding them, but here come the Dornish, you know? But the Dornish, in this case, were provoked by the same people they just bent the knee to. So it's, you can't, I mean... I'm not saying Joffrey's a good guy here for burning the farms and villages of innocent people, but the Seven Kingdoms are the aggressors here, pretty clearly, right? As for Sir Adam, he didn't do the dumb thing. He didn't run into Dorne with his army trying to recover these hostages and punish this army. That, that would have been pretty foolish. He tried to run back to Old Town to try to confront Sir Joffrey, who had just killed his brother because he got news of that, like a rider ran up the road and told him about this. He moved quickly to run back to Old Town. But of course, Joffrey knew. Again, this was probably planned. They knew that the army had been drawn away to Nightsong and this was enabled Joffrey to make his move. So once that lar the larger force is moving back to Old Town, well, Joffrey's like, okay, now it's time to get the hell out of here through our secret mountain passes. And yeah, so spies and scouting and planning really worked for the Dornish here. They really fooled the Hightowers and, and got them to move their men away and attack while they were weak. And yeah, just to, they got owned. <laughs> they got really outthought here, outmaneuvered badly. Intelligence, the value of a battlefield intelligence. Right. Now, it may just be a coincidence, but maybe Lord Manfred felt responsible, felt the loss of his son. You know, it may have, he may have thought like his decision-making was the reason for that. Maybe his son wasn't ready for this responsibility. Maybe he felt guilty. Who knows? Either way, he died within, within the year. So it may have, just, may have been completely unrelated. But yeah, this couldn't have helped his outlook, his disposition, his stress level, etc. So Adam, who had run a wild goose chase trying to chase down Dornish raiders, became the new lord of the Hightower. And Old Town was presumably angry for revenge against the Dornish, particularly Starfall, even though even though Dorne wasn't the aggressor, they kind of were in this sub-theater of the war because they did invade, kind of, kind of a counter-invasion, you could call it. And they did get it. They got their revenge not directly, not by their own hand, but Visenya brought Vagar to Starfall and gave it a good baking. Wasn't as vicious as Valerian burning Harrenhal because Vagar's flames don't burn as hot. It didn't melt the castle. But that happened. So... Nina writes, that's really important. It's really important. The feudal relationship, the, the overlord and vassal connection. Well, you're supposed to punish the people that attacked you. Your feudal lord is supposed to... You hand over the keys to violence to them. <laughs> They're allowed mm -hmm. to do that. They're, they're supposed to be the ones that handle justice and, and things like this. So burning Starfall might have seemed like sufficient payback for what had happened to them. But... Things only got worse on the, the revenge side for the Targaryens because Meraxes was shot down over the Hellholt, the site that the Tyrells had on lockdown for a little while there. And of course, Rhaenys and, uh, went down with Meraxes and they were never heard of again. No word on if Sir Joffrey was ever killed or if he lived out his life normally or what happened. So he, he may have gotten away with it. It's an outside possibility. He was a sword of the morning, but you kind of think that would have been mentioned. The reason I bring this up, even though it's not really related to Hightower stuff, is 
you would like, this guy burned villages and stuff. How could he be sword of the morning? Ah, come on, y'all. <laughs> you got to be a little more cynical. <laughs> human beings vote for who the sword of the morning is. <laughs> the human beings can do all sorts of stuff, you know, like they don't have to, have, and they can be coerced into choosing this guy. He could have, I think we're going to see that in A Song of Ice and Fire. I think we're going to see Darkstar seize Dawn. Be like, yep, I'm sword of the morning. And what are you going to do about it? You know? <laughs> The Kingsguard, ostensibly, are Perfect honorable example. and yeah. you know, knightly, and yet we know they are not, yeah. consistently are not. Well, we have a, uh, literally an undead monster is in the Kingsguard now. I mean, how, <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> Maybe Joffrey was a dead, undead monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure, yeah, it's possible, right? Yeah. So regardless of whether Lord Adam felt like that was sufficient vengeance for his brother or not, we don't know, or just... To, if enough had been done to Dorne. I mean, Dorne was messed up by all the burnings of the, the dragons. So it's hard to say that they weren't sufficiently punished, but you never know. Again, humans have a large capacity for revenge. Either way, the war ended three years later when Aegon just gave up the war after getting that mysterious letter that caused him to say, all right, he got real frustrated, went, flew back to Dragonstone, came back, and was like, all right, no more war. No, no high towers are mentioned at court when that happened. Still, whether they wanted revenge or not, or whether they felt satisfied, this is the, the quote that describes that moment. The Dornish victory, if victory it was, was seen to be dishonorable, and the survivors of the fight, and the sons and brothers of those who had fallen, promised one another that another day would come, and with it, a reckoning. Their vengeance would need to wait for a future generation and the accession of a younger, more bloodthirsty king. Though he would sit the Iron Throne for another 24 years, the Dornish conflict was Aegon the Conqueror's last war. So whether or not they got enough vengeance, they certainly got extended peace, and that's a pretty valuable, especially in this new raid, nearly raid-free environment. No Dornish raids, no Ironborn raids, nothing, at least nothing on a large scale. Surely there were some exceptions here and there, but nothing that would cause a, you know, policy changes or anything like that. At this phase, if we jump forward to the year 25, this is when we know King's Landing had, was growing fast. It was a, already the third largest city by this point. So still Old Town was larger. By this point, Old Town could probably see the writing on the wall and was like, this, new, this King's Landing is going to surpass us. Whether that bothered them or not, like it's, it's probably not a big deal. Like It's a small point of pride maybe. I doubt it was a huge problem. You know, a bigger city, to them, that might be even a benefit. Like we talked about earlier, that might just be more trade. That might actually be good for them. I'm not an expert on this sort of thing, but I think it's a good thing. Even though, even though some pride may have been involved, ultimately, it's probably good for them. I also feel like a, a city as old and wealthy and educated as them might recognize that we're at capacity. Like we don't necessarily have... <laughs> the land or food for more people, you know, like, good job if you can make more, but we're at capacity. We are at capacity. (laughs) 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 Yep. So Lord Adam had two children of note, perhaps only two children total, though we don't even know who he married. So there's just some unknowns here, a few. These two kids that we do know of are very interesting, though. The elder was Patrice, Patrice Hightower, and she has a lot in common with the current a current member of House Hightower, that is Melora. Melora, who is called Melora the Mad Maid. What they have in common is both 
being the eldest, although I'm not sure if Melora is the eldest or just the eldest daughter. Patrice is actually the eldest. And they're both rumored to be involved in sorcery. They're both maidens, which only enhances their reputation as using magic because of all these superstitions that you have to be a virgin to practice magic, which is a tradition rooted in some real-world superstitions. And Melora is supposedly helping her father research books and spells to deal with these Ironborn raids. So Patrice wouldn't have had that issue since the Ironborn had stopped. But all these things they have in common. The son that Adam had was another Manfred, so he named his son after his father, and that Manfred also became Lord. He was the next Lord after Adam, but we aren't quite there yet. It's possible this Manfred was the one who married the Tarth triplet, though. Certainly don't have a lot of possibilities there. Manfred had, the second Lord Manfred, had sons Martin and Morgan, as well as a daughter named Cerise. Cerise might ring a bell because she is pretty famous. You'll see why in a moment if you don't already know. And again, probably some other unnamed children, these high towers as fertile as they are, but they don't all make the history books. There were seven different high septons during Aegon's 36 to 37 year reign. All of them apparently stayed on good terms with him, which likely benefited the high towers and may have been in part because of the high towers. They may have been like, get along with him. Just, we need you to get along with the king. You can see why it would be good for us. Like, don't, don't be too religious. <laughs> don't be, don't, they <laughs> you're a high people septum, that we never get along with them in the first place. Yeah. Coach them on how to get along with them once they're in position. Are septons a position for life? Did all seven of them die and get replaced? Or is there some yeah, other they process? Don't. Yeah, they are. It's like, it's like the right. Pope or whatever, where you don't, you, you're not, you only, it's a position you hold till you die. Like King's Carbs. Like Although there's probably been a few exceptions where someone got booted. I can't think of any. I mean, for the Kingsguard, I can. Well, I can think of the one example, <laughs> but I can't think of any examples of a High Septon being booted before his time, except also in A Song of Ice and Fire when the High Sparrows people just like interrupted the choosing. So maybe even technically the new High Septon hadn't been chosen yet. Anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. It just seems like a, that's a lot to die in that span of time. Well, they're usually so old in they're... the first place because it's usually like, right. you know, but still, you're right. Maybe they're picking older people. But I, I also wonder if maybe some of them weren't playing ball and got some poison in their wine it, or whatever. It's possible, you know? but it says they all, there was no animosity between them. So if that, but that could have been covered up. They may have just yeah. been poisoned quickly. But they're also chosen by vote. It's not like they're just like the oldest guy gets nominated. So that the voting process, they would have been concerned with that pleasing the king before choosing him, not after. Now, there's always the chance of, you elect someone that says all the right things and then they completely flip on you and do with it. Like, we've all yeah. seen that happen in the real world. <laughs> we've all seen politicians break like all their promises. Only Nixon could go to China. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, we got to keep that in mind. A healthy dose of cynicism always, always comes in handy here, always seems appropriate. Now, one of those high septons did object, though. There wasn't, it wasn't like it was all smooth sailing entirely. They stayed on good terms, but it wasn't like they didn't have conflict. One of them objected the, to the notion of Magor marrying Reyna. Now, remember, let's Magor, uncle of Reyna. Magor didn't have, didn't have any living children of his own. But his older brother, Aenys, had plenty of kids. So what does the High Septon say? He says, we object to Reyna marrying Magor. We're against incest. Why not marry my niece instead? My niece, Cerise Hightower. <laughs> 
And this was accepted. They were like, yes, okay, let's do that. So this kind of shows that Aegon was like, he was interested in a Hightower marriage, but not to himself. So he's like, yeah, let's do that. He had the Hightower marriage to the junior branch of his family because Aenys' branch was the one that was going to inherit the throne, or so he thought. <laughs> well, Aenys' <laughs> branch did inherit Ostensibly. it. Ostensibly. But his kids didn't. That's super interesting because that's whoever Lord Manfred married. We don't know who his wife was. It's the same house that this High Septon came from because that's his, Cerise's his niece. So we can make that connection. So they got their connection to the royal family. It wasn't through the main line, but it still was a big deal. Magor wasn't in the line of succession, but he was eventually handed the king to Aene. So there's a lot of, you know, he was a great warrior, one of the finest knights in the realm. And Cerise married Magor. She was 23. And he was 13. That's important, not because of the age gap, although that's relevant, but because people didn't know what Magor was yet. They didn't know what they were dealing with. The full, like, the, his, his inner psychopath hadn't fully manifested yet. They were the red flags, but those were mostly kept under wraps. Like, people didn't necessarily know that he'd already, like, killed a horse and a st- nearly killed a stable boy that, you know, screamed at him or just, just in shock and horror. Yeah, so, like, they didn't know what they were dealing with yet. Yeah, that's... Didn't turn out to be so great, tying yourself to Magor. <laughs> yeah. Now, Magor boasted of his many attempts to make an heir on Cerise. They never had a child. And this was a big problem for him because he thought of it as a manly thing to have kids, like a lot of Westerosi men do. They're like, you're not man enough to have kids. And he didn't have kids with Cerise. Meanwhile, his brother, Aenys, who by a lot of measures was not manly at all, according to people like Magor, he had five kids by, you know, just kept hopping more kids out. So like, by that measure, his brother was far manlier than him. Yeah. There was actually a sixth child that died as an infant. So, you know, there's that too. So let's move on to, to Aenys, in fact. Aenys, like his father, he was crowned in the Starry Sept. And a number of revolts happened, like, soon after Aegon's death, in part because... Well, Aegon was strong and powerful and no one wanted to rebel against him, but Aenys was seen as a lot softer and weaker, so th- people thought maybe they could, they could get over on him, whereas they couldn't on Aegon. But most of these aren't terribly relevant to House Hightower. The Vulture King maybe had been, because that's sort of in their sphere, but maybe not a big deal. They may have been worried, though, if the Vulture King is going to emerge and, and savage other parts of the region, they might have been worried about something happening, uh, another army like Joffrey Danes emerging from, from the east and, and causing problems. So they might have been wary of that. They also would have been maybe wary about what was happening in the Iron Isles because after the latest Ironborn Rebellion was put down, Aenys offered them a boon. And the boon they asked for was to kick all the Septons and Septas out of the Iron Islands. And Aenys is like, oh, well, I guess I have to accept that. That might have made them nervous about the Ironborn starting their raiding ways again. It didn't, apparently, but it did bring them closer to that point again. And they might have been worried. They're like, okay, well, we're tied to Magor, and we get this weak king, Aenys. You wonder if they thought maybe Magor would have been a better king, too. Now, of course, that is what happens. But you wonder if... Did they do anything to maybe make that happen, or did they... Did they tell Magor they'd help? Or was there any sort of back and forth prior to these next set of events? Because Magor was a problem. Like, you don't just say, yeah, yeah, you look at him and say he's stronger than Aenys, but that doesn't mean you look at him and say, oh, he's our ticket. Because 
he obviously became very problematic over time, very murderous, and not to mention not having children, which puts the stability of his line in question. So we're jumping forward to the year 39, where he's, Magor is now at this point hand of the king to Aenys. He declared Cerise barren uh, and took Alice Haraway to wife. He's like, well, my father was, had a polygamous marriage. Why can't I do it? And Visenya backed him in this. Visenya was like, yeah, go right ahead. Do it, son. But obviously the faith was like, no. And House Hightower was like, no, that's our daughter slash sister. You can't do that to her. This is embarrassing. Like, you're embarrassing our whole house. Like, think of that. You just set his wife aside and declares her barren? Pretty embarrassing, right? So the High Septon demanded Magor return to Cerise. I want to clarify, it's worth noting that there is, I mean, they can't compete with dragons, but the faith has like a military arm. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. At this time, it's, it's not a complete hollow statement for the High Septon to say, I don't want X. He can't say, I'm going to send troops if you do X, yes. right? He didn't because he didn't, he didn't want to have it come to that, but he was yeah. trying to use social slash religious pressure rather than the threat of violence because, yeah, the threat of violence wouldn't be wouldn't benefit them. It wouldn't work. probably work for them. They didn't want to take on the dragons. Although they could, they could skirt that line with Aenys on the throne because Aenys was unlikely to bring things to a head. Magor, obviously, a different matter. If Magor had been king at this point, they might have done things differently or not because this High Septon didn't back down. <laughs> yeah. So let's, yeah, let's move on here. He demands that Magor return to Cerise and, and re-accept her as his lawful wedded wife and, and bring her back to his household. But he also went so far as to call Alice Haraway, who he had married as a second wife. He went out and called her the whore of Haraway. I was like, that's pretty harsh. <laughs> like, it's not her fault. <laughs> Lord Manfred was also loudly against the polygamy too, unsurprisingly. I mean, Cerise was his daughter, so he would not have taken kindly to all the insults and the, the fraying of this connection to the royal house as well. So he and the High Septon were together on this. They were united on it. Magor Aenys pushed back on his brother and was like, you have to take Cerise back and set aside your second wife or face the consequences of exile. Megor's like, all right, exile. He left, and he went, packed up and went to Pentos. Megor obviously had to abandon his post as hand to the king. And Aenys appointed Septon Mermison in his place. Septon Mermison was a creepy old weirdo who <laughs> said he could fix Cerise's fertility by laying his hands upon her. Laying his hands upon her to fix her for like that is some real creepy stuff right there, right? And Cerise got tired of it and left. <laughs> She's like, I'm not going through these quote unquote fertility treatments anymore. I'm going back to Old Town. Leave me alone, you creepy weirdo. Like, aside anecdote time, folks. When I first moved to Atlanta, I got a hold of this magazine that's only distributed to people that go to strip clubs and people who attend like adult entertainment. And this, this magazine is full of entertaining, hilarious, you, you, hilarious. You certainly didn't find it at a strip club. Oh, no, of course, because I no. wasn't at a strip club. No, no. 21-year-old <laughs> me would never have gone to a strip club. No, yeah. no. Never. Not in Atlanta, the, like no. the, the capital of strip clubs. No. no. But <laughs> in this magazine was this man with his hands like this, like, like he's getting ready to grab something. His pitch was he threw his... Massage techniques, he will make your breasts larger. Ah. He was trying to get women to pay him 
to fondle them. <laughs> like, uh-huh. what the hell, man? So this is what I think what's of with Septon Mermison. You know what she says? What's his number? <laughs> where? Where? That's horrible. Where is he? Where is this where man? Is this man? <laughs> <laughs> How do I find him? <laughs> so I can complain. No. Anyway, but the pro- this problem was inflamed even further by Magor because rather gr- worse than what Magor had done because Aenys was like, yeah, the faith is mad at us. They were mad at what Magor did. So I know I will just marry my son to my daughter. That, <laughs> that won't make things worse, will it? So of course, that was a huge problem. The High Septon went volcanic on that and was like, what? the hell you know this is an abomination blah 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 he said all the thing he said all the things he said before but louder and and more forceful and anis again because he's kind of a softy was unwilling to threaten them or say shut up or i'll burn the starry sept which is what visenya told him to do and what magor would have told him to do had he been there and nina's like yeah just her notes are like yeah shaking his shaking your head here what are you doing anis <laughs> Aegon's marriage was accepted by the faith because it already happened. It was already there before the conquest. So they didn't have a say in that one. They weren't going to be like, you have to divorce your queens. Like, yeah, they just, that wasn't going to happen. They didn't try that. But this, before it happens, like they announced the intention of this. It hasn't actually happened yet. They're like, so they, of course they speak up and say, are you kidding me? Didn't you accept our religion? This is so against our religion. Remember, the doctrine of, of exceptionalism hadn't been written yet. Hadn't, that's, that's a thing that happened under Jaehaerys. So this was completely out of nowhere and crazy that Aenys would think it was accepted. Uh, you wonder if Visenya was just like egging him on. Like, yeah, don't listen to them. Just do it. Just do it, you know? Because <laughs> that seems to be Visenya is definitely the angel on the shoulder that's choosing violence. Like if you've got... I don't, I don't, know, if she, I don't know if he had anyone on his left shoulder saying, no, don't do that and the other non-voice that doesn't exist at all, you know? <laughs> I can imagine Aenys or Visenya feeling like it's out of nowhere for the Sept to tell me who I can marry. Yeah, you know, yeah, that yeah I agree. I mean, Visenya would not have... That's, that tends to be her attitude. Like, you can't tell us what to do. <laughs> you, can't, <laughs> you have no say at all. Like, how dare you even suggest you have a say in this? Like, that's, that feels like her attitude. Accepting your religion and following the, the rules of your religion's leader are different. Yes. We've got dragons, buddy. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Visenya is so awesome. I love Visenya. <laughs> she's, she's a maker of fun events. In the year 41, all these problems came to a full-on head. The faith uprising became kind of official at this point. Like, it was already burbling. Like, obviously, the High Septon's been complaining for a while. And super relevant to the Hightowers because the commander of the Warrior Sons chapter in Old Town was Morgan Hightower. And that's the son of, Mar- of Manfred. And Manfred dies shortly after this, was succeeded by his eldest son, Martin. Martin would face an entirely different problem because while Aenys is not a violent man, Aenys wouldn't be around much longer and Martin would have to deal with Magor the Cruel as king instead of this dude in exile. So about a year later, as the early stages of the uprising continued to progress, and Aenys was just like, I don't know what to do. He throws his hands up in his air like, call a council to deal with these problems. Wait, don't call a council to deal with these. Wait, send you... He just, yeah, he just effed it up pretty bad. And he died after having some health issues in the care of Visenya. So it's pretty sketchy, but that's a whole nother story. And that's our stopping point for halfway through the episode. Can I ask a quick question? Absolutely. So Martin and Morgan were brothers? Yes. Manfred was their father, yeah. Is Martin the older brother? Yes. 
say he died, would it have then gone to Morgan? Is Morgan like, given up his rights to be in the faith or whatever? It depends on, I don't, probably not, because by that time, Martin probably already had his own children. But if not, yes. Okay. Yes, and then Morgan would have had to either been passed over for a son that hadn't committed or would have had to have left the Warrior Sons. But the Warrior Sons wasn't like a lifetime commitment, I don't think, in this era. So I don't think it's like the King's Guard or something like that. So I think that would have yeah. been accepted, especially for such a rich house, they could have gotten around any sort of yeah, consequence yeah. for that. Like, yeah, it was, yeah, let's little leverage. Use our, yeah, let's, let's mm-hmm. settle this our way. Anyway, that's a lot. That's a very active part of the first reign. We covered Aegon and Aenys in the second half of, of this episode. We're going to get to if Magor covers even more time. I just want to say, you know, y'all, we're only a few weeks away from Fire and Blood reread us. And in that time, as you, as I've been saying the last several weeks, it's, it's, the time is dwindling for you to get in on our $2 a month price for Patreon because that price is going away. Those of you who already have it, will get to keep it. So if you, if you get in now, you can keep that $2 price even after it goes up for good. And that uh, reason, one of the reasons it's going up is because we've got, we've been continually adding to our patron content. And over the years, well, it seems to be more valuable. There's more bonus episodes you get now than you used to, including the most recent one, Mantaris, City of Monsters scripted content. That one is for patrons and and subscribers only. So check that out or sign up today and you can get access to that episode as well as all all the other bonus episodes like the Red Kraken, like Gagasos, like the Where Are They Nows, like some other ones. I can't remember them all. (laughs) Can I share a funny anecdote about the creation of Mentaris? Absolutely. That just cracked me up. When we were making that episode, I had Sean do the quotes for it because I did the editing and I didn't really want to listen to myself to the quotes. So I had Sean do the quotes and there were eight quotes originally and he sent me an email with the quotes. And then we said, oh, sorry, we added a ninth quote that you don't have. Can you send us that one too? And well, I got an email from Sean that said, Mantaris, now with the shocking ninth quote. (laughs) (laughs) You won't believe it. Really you won't up. believe. Now with the shocking, you know, subscribe to hear what the shocking ninth quote is. <laughs> Quite amused me. Also, want to make sure people know about our monthly Patreon hangouts that we've started doing recently. We have gaming and other fun activities for any of you who are interested. And the next one is July twenty seventh, nine p.m. If you're hearing this after the fact, join our Discord or our Facebook group to keep updated on when those times are. Also, thanks to Davey Mack, who sends a super chat and says, thanks, History of Westeros, for your great content. Well, we appreciate that, Davey. We will keep it coming. And Jenny P says, I know this is a tad off topic, but just popping in to say, I've been rereading and listening to the Valaritas. So good. Love your content. Well, thank you, Jenny P. And we're happy to be getting back to Valaritas pretty soon for Fire and Blood. Mm-hmm. It's a long way out, but we will redo the entirety of Valaritas one day. And that day will come after the Windsor Winter. <laughs> so, <laughs> It'll be a good time to do the whole reread us once we have a whole new book to consider in light of the previous five. But we'll see when that is. Who knows? Okay, Magor. Wow, the reign of Magor, though relatively short, was extremely active for House Hightower and launched events that would continue after his reign. The dual problems of Magor the Cruel and the Faith Militant became one big combined problem as the two factions embarked on a bloody campaign against one another. The high towers were caught in the middle. On one side, Cerise was married to Magor. On the other side, they were estranged and they had a long association with the faith and thus some elements of the faith militant. It's not clear, especially at this era, 
where the faith begins and where the faith militant begins. Like how much overlap? It, it wasn't as well-defined thing because, well, it's not like people are out there wearing their allegiance badges and like they're carrying around a flag to say which side they're on, right? No, of course not. In fact, the faith militant practiced a lot of subterfuge because Nagor started hunting them down. So they had to, they had to keep hidden for reasons of just basic strategy. Now, again, Morgan's Martin's brother, Lord Martin Hightower, his brother was Sir Morgan, commander of the Old Town Warrior's Sons. That's really important. So the faith militant would be even closer to orders like this, the ones who are already kind of violent and maybe more willing to get bloody in defense of their beliefs. The swords and stars were everywhere. The swords are basically is the short nickname for the, the warrior sons and the stars were nicknamed for the poor fellows, who were the two categories within the faith militant. Remember, the swords are the more are the usually the ones that came from decent families, meaning moneyed families, not decent like in their behavior, <laughs> of course. And the poor fellows are more of like the, the common-born members of that organization. So before and after Magor claimed the crown, Cerise continued to put it out there that she was his only true wife. Like, this is not a quiet, mousy individual who just like took what happened to her lying down. Now, she was outspoken about the scenario that she was faced with. She was like, nope, I'm his one wife. That's it. Like, I'm married under the eyes of gods and men. That's the only one that counts. This second marriage is completely invalid. Which, by the way, is an interesting argument <laughs> to put forward. Like, is a second marriage valid or not? That might become relevant in, in A Song of Ice and Fire. Maybe not, but maybe it will be. And this is true. This continued even after Magor took it even farther. Because when he came back from exile, he had a third wife. <laughs> he married Tiana of Pentos. He's like, well, what's better than two wives? Three. Of course, eventually it would be six. But that's, that's not even in this episode. We're not even going to get that far. Grand Maester Myros even told his king, he's like, your true wife is Cerise Hightower. Grand Maester, keep in mind, influenced maybe by the Hightower, <laughs> but Magor killed him. <laughs> so <laughs> he's like, yeah, okay. It said that Magor listened to him, let him say everything he was going to say, then killed him. <laughs> Just like, yike, okay then. But the High Septon, that didn't stop the High Septon. He kept condemning the polygamous marriages. It's, it's not clear that Lord Martin did, though. Martin's father, Manfred, did. Manfred was out there complaining, but Martin didn't. And But, oh, we don't know that he did. And there's a reason why he might not have, and that's because Manfred was complaining to Aenys. <laughs> Martin, if he's complaining, it's to Magor, and Magor just, like, killed the Grand Maester. And Magor, actually, Magor killed three of his Grand Maesters throughout his reign. So, perilous position to be in, apparently. Any proximity to Magor is perilous, I suppose. So that's fair for Martin to <laughs> approach things differently than his father had. There's, there was really no danger of Aenys going ultra-violent, but Magor, it's like, yeah, like, drop of a hat, this guy could do that. But yeah, again, the, the, and the difficulty, it's like a tightrope walk. Like, Magor is getting increasingly bloody and brutal. Like, how does the Hightower stand on this issue of, like, the faith being persecuted, but also the faith, like, breaking laws, like some of what the faith stood for, the faith militant stood for was just pure zealotry, but some of it was, yeah, some of them are criminals, but some of them are like, have the right of it. It's, it's not, it's, this is a very gray scenario. There, there's not a lot of good guys here. Although it's, 
I think you could make a case that Megor was worse. <laughs> but that's not really our job today. We're not really here to discuss that. But from the Hightower perspective, they're like, well, what do we do? Like, we're tied to Megor because of this marriage. But even that isn't really working out right now. Like, he's estranged from her. But do we, do we even want to fix that? Like, Cerise does. But do, is that really what we want? Do we Maybe we want to, like, cut the cord here. Let this guy go down in flames. But at, at this point, maybe it wasn't clear that he would. It wasn't clear that... Like, Megor's reign self-destructed over time, right? He just lost the... Lost so many of the lords that eventually it all just fell apart for him. But this is so early in his reign. That had not happened yet. He had not lost anything at this point. He was... Everyone was afraid of him. Even his own... Even the, the half of the family that he had usurped, they just took it. At this point, they hadn't made any move yet. They were still just like, yeah, all right, Megor is the king. And Megor was content to just let that lie. He didn't go pursue his nephew to murder him to say to make sure nothing happened. He seemed just confident that no one would move against him. And you can see why. The guy was terrifying and he had Balerion. So like, and Visenya was still alive too because a, a lot of what went wrong for Megor happened after Visenya's death. What a weird spot for the high towers to be in. Like, do we want to be in this arrangement? Do we want to make the most of it? Do we want to find our way out of it? Like, I have no idea how they would have viewed it. So much depends on the personality of Lord Martin, which is a complete mystery to us. But he couldn't have just been like, la-di-da, you know, it's fine. <laughs> that much, I think, is pretty safe. And things came to a head, though. In 43 AC, Megor and Visenya and, and Balerion... I wrote in my notes, Magor and Visenya and Magor. Yeah, two Magors came to Old Town. <laughs> oh, God, two Magors. That's terrible. Maybe it's a double negative. Maybe it would have canceled out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Magor the cruel and Magor the nice. <laughs> Magor the, the Magor friendly. the cool. Magor the cool, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he, and he, he, it's not like, like, why is Magor coming? No, no, he, he had the intent of incinerating the Starry Sept. He like kind of, Kind of said he would do that, I guess, or that's what the expectation was. Here's the quote, anyway. As pillars of smoke rose all through the Westerlands and the Riverlands, Vagar and Balerion turned south. Another Lord Hightower, counseled by another High Septon, had opened the gates of Old Town during the conquest. Now it seemed as if the greatest and most populous city in Westeros must surely burn. Thousands fled Old Town that night, streaming from the city gates or taking ship for distant ports. Thousands more took to the streets in drunken revelry. This is a night for song and sin and drink, men told one another. For come tomorrow, the virtuous and the vile burn together. Others gathered in septs and temples and ancient woods to pray they might be spared. In the starry sept, the high septon railed and thundered, calling down wrath of the gods upon the Targaryens. So this is a very different scenario. It says another high septon and another lord of Old Town, you know, surrendered to the dragons. But this lord Hightower, not, it, will, it will remain a mystery what he really thought. But this High Septon did not play ball, clearly. This High Septon seems to be like one of the true believers. He's like calling for the gods to intervene. Like, that's not something a, a semi-believer expects to happen. You've got to really, really believe to think that's going to happen. Like, this guy seems to have like kind of gone off the deep end even, maybe. So yeah, it was Lord Martin's great-grandfather, Manfred, that, that obeyed that listened to the High Septon when the High Septon had seven days. By the way, I didn't mention it at the time. The High Sparrow mentions that vision, mentions that the High Septon preached surrender. He tells that to Cersei. So that's kind of interesting given all the potential for Cersei to maybe 
blow up Sept or that get blown up through some other means. Maybe we got maybe Danny does it. After our after all, Magor did torch the Sept of Remembrance, <laughs> which also would have looked odd to the High Towers. Like you're burning entire Septs, man. Like ah, that's not good. Like yeah, the Warrior Sons were like all camped out in there, and yeah, they're fighting against you. But it just that's too much, man. <laughs> but it also showed. No, this guy is not just talking. Like he he has already burned a sept. <laughs> so when this threat to burn the story sept, you can see why people took it seriously. You can see why thousands of people fled the city. You can see why thousands of people treated it like the apocalypse. Because they're like, yeah, well, this guy has proven multiple times that he will burn what he says he will burn. At first, Martin seemed to be backing the high septon. Like, yeah, you're right. Call down the wrath of the gods. Maybe he didn't see a way out of it. Maybe he couldn't figure out a way to, to maneuver the situation to something more peaceable. Yeah, so when a high septon says things loudly that you agree with, you let him go. But well, what do you do when the high septon, like you agree, not only do you agree with him, you, you say, yes, it's the will of the gods. But what do you do when the will of the gods is going to get you killed? <laughs> like you've got to like do something, right? Maybe you have faith that the gods will intervene. You, yeah. Well, like, you might. There's no way Stannis could beat Renly, right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're, that's a good point. So maybe that's what he thought. But then as the days went by and the gods didn't intervene and it became clear that Nagor was going to arrive soon, well, maybe you just got to find a new will of the gods. <laughs> like, it's like, maybe we need a new will here. Someone else write us one. Anyway, quote. The men of the city watch filled sacks with sand and pails with water to fight the fires they knew were coming. Along the city walls, crossbows, scorpions, spitfires, and spear throwers were hoisted onto the battlements in hopes of bringing down the dragons when they appeared. Led by Sir Morgan Hightower, a younger brother of the Lord of Oldtown, 200 warriors' sons spilled forth from their chapter house to defend his high holiness, surrounding the starry sept with a ring of steel. Atop the high tower, the great beacon fire turned a baleful green as Lord Martin Hightower called his banners. Old Town waited for the dawn and the coming of the dragons. And the dragons came. Vagar first as the sun was rising, then Balerion just before midday. But they found the gates of the city open, the battlements unmanned, and the banners of House Targaryen, House Tyrell, and House Hightower flying side by side atop the city walls. The Dowager Queen Visenya was the first to learn the news, sometime during the blackest hour of that long and dreadful night. The High Septon had died. <laughs> so just like the, high so the, the first High Septon that surrendered his thing seems so engineered. This seems very clearly engineered as well, <laughs> right? Like pretty clearly straightforward. Like no way was that a coincidence, especially because this dude was healthy. He was known to be a, 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 someone who just had endless energy. He could preach for a day and a night without getting tired. He was famous for his energy level. So yeah, maybe he just burned out drop dead. But so unlikely, so unlikely. I, I mean, it's hard for me to believe. It's almost hard for me to even consider that as a possibility. It's only in there because it is technically possible. You know, a person can die at any time. But no, I, I mean, yeah, the timing is, we, we, we expect he was murdered, but who? Who did it? Like, 
more did Martin just like pretend like he was going to fight just to show his strength and then oh well I Septon died and now well that's that changes everything so he doesn't want to look like a coward or I don't know but but the text gives us a lot of options here's some more quote Some say that his high holiness took his own life in what was either the act of a craven afraid to face the wrath of King Megor or a noble sacrifice to spare the good folk of Old Town from Dragonfire. Others claim the seven struck him down for the sin of pride, for heresy, treason, and arrogance. Many and more remain certain he was murdered. But by whom? Sir Morgan Hightower did the deed at the command of his lord brother, some say. And Sir Morgan was seen entering and leaving the High Septon's privy chambers that night. Others point to the lady, Patrice Hightower, Lord Martin's maiden aunt and a reputed witch, who did indeed seek an audience with his high holiness at dusk, though he was alive when she departed. The archmaesters of the citadel are also suspected, though whether they made use of the dark arts, an assassin, or a poisoned scroll is still a matter of some debate. Messages went back and forth between the Citadel and the Starry Sept all night. And there are still others who hold them all blameless and lay the High Septon's death at the door of another rumored sorceress, the Dowager Queen, Visenya Targaryen. The truth will likely never be known, but the swift reaction of Lord Martin when word reached him at the High Tower is beyond dispute. Yes, it's notable that the High Septon was calling for the gods to intervene against Magor and Visenya, and he's the one who died. And people are like, that's the will of the gods. That's who the gods struck down. <laughs> it's funny. The Citadel is an interesting possibility. Like, I don't think they poisoned the High Septon, although it is, again, can't dismiss it, can't rule it out. But it is interesting that they had all these messages going back and forth all night. The Citadel's like trying to reason with him, like, dude. This can't be the right way to proceed. Just yell at Magor until he comes and burns the city. Like, how is that going to result in a, a win for the faith? Like, how, how can we possibly go down this path? But the Citadel has limited means to do anything about it other than reason with him, except if we take this notion of a poison scroll seriously, which we don't know if that's even a thing. <laughs> I don't know of any examples of poison scrolls, although I wouldn't put it past like the faceless men to come up with something like that. Still. It seems kind of like they're just throwing darts at a dartboard here. Like, well, it could have been the Citadel because it could have been the Citadel, not because there's any direct evidence. Like, messages isn't much, isn't much evidence. Uh, almost anyone has motivation because everyone's scared of just getting burned. Yeah, death, right? you're right. That's what uh, makes it so hard. It's like every single person and, is like, shut up, High Septon. <laughs> and not just personal fear, but they're afraid for like their city, their families, their compatriots, their history, and never everything else is connected to it. Like, not, but maybe also themselves. Which I imagine this would be the makings of a really intriguing episode, at least of a of a TV show, if not a, a movie or whatever. But just to see the inside, to see this interaction, and I thought a lot about it too. I think another you know, suspect is some other septum or group of septums. They might like, he might be preaching all this, but all the people under him are like, "Look, man, like, like right. you got it." And and maybe they were like, "Hey, Citadel." Is there any precedent? Can you research your books and find something to tell them? Can, can, we, yeah, like, can, we, hey, like, can we remove him from office somehow? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Send us some poison. We'll poison him. Like, I can imagine multiple people like 
coming and going, and maybe even some people around him being convinced by all the other arguments going to him and him not accepting it, but everyone else realizing the danger that they didn't know was there because of the dragons or the options they have to do something different and on and on. You're, so. you're right, though. That's a really that's a, a good catch. And the, the faith aren't mentioned. His fellow faithful are not mentioned as the potential murderers here, which yeah. they should be. I mean, I'm not saying they're any more suspect than the rest, but like you say, pretty much everyone had the incentive to get rid of this guy. <laughs> yeah. The only one I don't believe is Visenya because like, She's on her dragon flying there. Like, how is she going to arrange for this guy's death? <laughs> and a part of her... Magic. Yeah, yes. Yeah, she's <laughs> casting spells from dragon back. Yeah, like... Yeah, yeah that, doesn't, that doesn't really work for me. <laughs> anyway, Patrice Hightower, again, she gets mentioned as a witch, and, you know, she was in his presence, so that's circumstantial. But, I, I mean, I wouldn't cast her aside. Like, if she's... A, if her... Nephew is like, we got to get rid of the High Septon. She might be a, a means to make that happen. On the other hand, it's already an established prejudice against women in Westeros that poison is a woman's weapon or a Dornish weapon. So yeah, that's, that's more likely why she's suspected. <laughs> but she's more likely than a lot of these other ones. At least she's an individual where the rest is like, the Citadel. Like, well, who? That's like the Citadel's a lot of people. Morgan Hightower, though, this is the guy that I think we should be most suspicious of. Yes, he explicitly went into the chambers and left. He was definitely in the High Septon's presence. That by itself doesn't tell you the story. Nina agrees, and let's get into why he's the most suspicious by far. Martin immediately ordered the arrest of his own brother, but not just his brother, all the warrior sons, but his brother was the captain of the Old Town chapter of Warrior Sons. So he orders them all arrested, which is interesting. Why did he order them arrested? Was it because, uh, to, to, for Magor's benefit, to show that he had the, you know, these, these people locked up or whatever, even though these, these particular group wasn't probably guilty of anything, unless they were guilty potentially of murdering Lord Hightower. I mean, sorry, the Septon, the High Septon. Either he felt strongly with regards to who to blame or he was doing a show for Magor or it was a setup to hide the real killer. There's a lot of possible, just like because it's so hard to pin down the real killer, it's so hard to pin down Martin's motivation and his angle here. But they definitely waited for Magor to hold the trial. Like they had him preside over the trial. And that was important to let, he's the king. He's the one who dispenses justice. So they didn't want to do that without him. That's his authority. And while, before Magor got there though, remember it said Visenya arrived first. And Megor arrived like at the break of day. Martin immediately sent a bunch of spearmen to the most devout and was like, "You're choosing a new high septon before Megor gets here. Like we have, we have, we got to do this now, 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 now." Kind of not quite like Stannis locking the the Night's Watch in a room and being like, "You're choosing a Lord Commander today." <laughs> you know, we're like, this, "We're done with this." But it's somewhat similar to that. So of course they're like reminding them, these spearmen, I'm sure the captain or whoever Martin sent was told, given some very specific orders as to what to say. is like, if you choose unwisely, <laughs> we're all gonna burn. <laughs> you know, make sure. <laughs> and what I mean by unwisely is choose someone that's kind of soft or is gonna do what Magor wants. You know, like, this isn't hard, y'all. Like, it's, this isn't tricky. <laughs> 
Someone they can interpret the faith more symbolically and less literally or whatever. Yes, yeah. yes. So they picked a 90-year-old man who could barely stand the weight of the crown. He's so like old that he couldn't even remember all the words during the coronation ceremony. So this is clearly a figurehead guy. But the ceremony was official. And they went did another coronation, making Magor, crowned Magor again to like authenticate his usurpation, which... That had to make him, like, that was a plus for him. He liked that. And, like, this is, did you see Magor? This is what you get. you get. You get an official coronation that kind of legitimizes your reign here rather than burning us all. Isn't that better? <laughs> you know? That was a big deal. Visenya was satisfied with that, and she went back to Dragonstone while Magor proceeded to stay and dispense justice. He was there for six months. They chose a 90-year-old man that could only, could barely take the weight of the crown. That's, the crystal crown. Yeah, that, that the, big crystal crown that 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 the high sparrow later sells for to feed the poor. I, yeah, I, I was I was trying to remember if that was still in existence in current times. It seemed, and I, I had this idea in my mind that the high sparrow would probably just sell that to help. It was with the money uh, it was a new one actually. The one that was sold under by high sparrow is a new one because the old one, which might not even be this one, but the the high sparrow. Remember the high septon died in the riot, the bread riot, when Joffrey started the riot there. And they yeah. dragged him off of his litter and killed him, and he was wearing the crystal crown. So the crystal crown was, like, destroyed and pulled into a million pieces there, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, so that, maybe that was this crown. Because but... I was thinking a crystal crown doesn't seem like something that would last for centuries. It's the crown of Theseus. It's been, it doesn't have any of its original parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So the High Septon, of course, taking orders or, or the advice of the most devout and or Lord Martin, dissolved the warrior's sons and the poor fellow. Like, they're gone. Like, they're no longer an official order. They're all, anyone in that order that doesn't lay down their arms is an outlaw. You've got a year to comply. Okay, so they gave them a little bit of time. So this is almost certainly one of the behind-the-scenes negotiations made with Magor. Like, yeah, we'll give you your coronation and you do this, you don't burn us. But Magor's like, but we got, you got to like also get rid of these orders. This has to be an official thing. Like, we, you know, we're done with them. I stepped in and the most devout were like, yeah, we agree. And of course, Balerion was right there. So of course they were going <laughs> to agree. <laughs> As an aside, I wonder, is Balerion too large to land atop the high tower? We know Silverwing landed up there. So it's not out of the question, but Billion might just be too big for that. But boy, would that look cool. Landing next to that green flame, if it was still green, when they may have changed the green back to normal by the time Magor got there, because they're like, no, we're not, we don't want him to think we're fighting him. <laughs> yeah. Turn that off. <laughs> <laughs> but man, that would look cool. The warriors, remember, some of the warriors' sons were arrested right away. Like, that's what Martin did immediately upon the death of the High Septon. Not only did he rouse the most devout and force them to choose a new leader, he rounded up all the warriors. Remember, he arrested his own, his own brother. And they were given a choice. Of course, they had to renounce the order because the order has been dissolved. So they had to renounce the order no matter what and either and take the black or face execution. If they didn't renounce the order slash take the black, they would die. A quarter of them chose death. The, the seven who were, seven of them came from famous, famous families and Magor executed them personally with Blackfire. The rest were executed by their former brothers. Yet somehow, Somehow, 
one person was pardoned. Only one person was pardoned, and it was Sir Morgan Hightower, the former captain of the Warriors' Sons and brother to the Lord of Hightower. Somehow he was spared all this, which is, of course... How convenient. Yeah, gosh. Doesn't look fishy at all, does it? Mm. So this might have been part of the deal. Like, whatever behind-the-scenes negotiation, okay, so Morgan gets a pardon. The Warriors' Sons are dissolved. The rest go to the wall. This and that. You, but there was another thing, and it was, most of these things seem to be in Magor's favor. What did the Hightowers get out of it? Well, there's a thing or two. We'll see in a minute. But yeah, like ultra fishy. Like, come on. <laughs> like, y'all, that's so blatant, right? But well, who's going to do anything about it? Well, I'll tell you. Someone is going to do something about it. Is it... It shows how about, legitimate yeah. the, the Septon was for not accepting, you know, willing to burn or whatever. It, it, it's crazy as it seemed to us. There was a bunch of other crazy people with him. There's a pious folk, yeah. It just goes uh, to show yeah. that you can... It, it also adds to the, like, why certain Hightower lords would be legitimately pious because they, like, this... It's a strong cultural element there. Yeah, like, you're right. Like, a quarter of them, it shows death instead of the wall, going to the wall, which they might have been like... Yeah. Which might be death also. Yeah, like. <laughs> so you can kind of maybe see. And that eventually became a problem, too. This is outside the scope of this episode, but recall that a lot of... Warriors' sons and former faithful were sent to the wall. And then a bunch of Magor supporters were sent to the wall. <laughs> they yeah, were suddenly the, the people at the wall are going to be yeah, uh, like, oh, in conflict. We and... don't like each other. You, you, got, you sent us here. Well, yeah, we did. Now we're here so with you. A follow-up, a follow-up thought is how many was that? He, he executed a quarter and the other three quarters went to the wall. Out of that was I like, think it was 200. Yeah. yeah, so it would have been like 40-plus yeah. killed. I mean, that's also pretty awful, yes. but yeah, yes. geez. It's true. Yeah, it's, it would have been a bloody day. Yeah. Remember, the coronation's a big deal. As I said, there's still the usurped line that completely untouched just sitting there. Magor wasn't threatened by them in part because they weren't even with their dragons. When Magor made his move, they were just in the West doing royal progress stuff without their dragons. When Magor seized King's Landing, their dragons were there. So they didn't have access to their dragons. Except they maybe did while he was in Old Town. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what happened. We'll get to that in a second. But it was almost certainly part of the, you know, the old arrangements. The faith was already predisposed against Aegon and Reyna. As we said, the High Septon was like, are you kidding me? You married to bro- a brother and sister after all this other stuff? That's part of what got this started. So of course, they, even though Magor was awful and brutal and murdering faithful, well, the other branch of the Targaryens was engaged in straight-up incest and weren't threatening them with a the dragon, the biggest one. So you could see why they like had to go along with Magor. They may have wanted to, but they kind of also kind of had to. So remember, Cerise was back in Old Town at this point, though. She had returned because she was sick of the healing hands of Septon Creepy Mermison. And... This was an opportunity. And I'm guessing that among the things they negotiated with Magor, along with, yeah, we'll do these things you want. But you have to take Cerise back, which he did. But there, it came with some extra considerations. They, they had to concede a few other things. So here we go. Quote. During his time at Old Town, the king was also reconciled with his first wife, Queen Cerise, the sister of his host, Lord Hightower. Her grace agreed to accept the king's other wives, to treat them with respect and honor and speak no further ill against them. Whilst Magor, while Magor swore to restore Cerise all the rights, incomes, privileges due her as his wedded wife and queen. 
A great feast was held at the high tower to celebrate the reconciliation. Rebels even included a betting and a second consummation. So all men would know this to be true and loving union. True and loving union. Yeah, it's anything <laughs> but that. <laughs> so all people would be convinced of this bold lie. <laughs> <laughs> this was backing them up. This was like also a way to make sure Magor would have their support if it came to war against the other branch of the family, which it did soon after this. Because, yeah, they, while he was down in Old Town, Aegon and Reyna realized they could make their move. And either way, the Hightowers didn't want to make an enemy of him, especially when he was right there. But Magor wasn't an idiot. He, he did kind of go, maybe there's, uh, there's, there's evidence that maybe he lost his mind a bit as things went on, like power went to his head, cruelty, maybe he had went crazy over time like Ares may have. Maybe he had some mental health issues that caused him to lose his grip on reality. Who knows? Thing is, early on, yeah, he was brutal, but he wasn't stupid. He did a lot of clever things. He knew he needed allies. He knew he wouldn't be able to hold the throne and rule Westeros without powerful houses behind him. So with the High Towers in his camp, he could proceed with a lot more confidence. Like, okay, I've got the High Towers behind me. Now I'm a lot more formidable than I was. And it was natural for many reasons, this alliance, because as we said, they were already together. They already had the pre-existing marriage. But of course, there are these issues. <laughs> the war against the faith militant. Despite the way they dodged this bullet, it still isn't popular that he's at war with the faith. Like, that's not a good thing, you know, for, for their relationship with him. But so you kind of wonder, some high towers might have been like, oh, this is bad. We didn't want Cerise to be close again with Magor. We wanted to further separate ourselves from this guy. But again, they we're not sure what they really thought of it. And despite that, they may have realized they weren't really getting into bed with Magor too much. Because this marriage hadn't produced any kids and they weren't any younger, right? Cerise was like 40 by this point, so it didn't her, the odds weren't getting better of her having children. So it seemed like this alliance might have had an expiration date. If kids are going to be brought into it, then it could, la like, who knows? Like, you've got family members born, and that could keep this in place for generations. But it, with no kids, you can see it ending. And then the Hightowers are like, okay, well, we're free and clear of Magor because we don't, we don't actually have a family connection anymore. So they may have looked forward to that day and just been like, we got to wait all this out. <laughs> also, this is before Magor's horrific infants were born, the ones that had just creepy things wrong with them, some of them a little draconic, some of them just like missing eyes and limbs and all that. None of that had happened yet. This is later in his reigns. And people started calling those children like abominations, like the punishment of the gods. That would have also really altered the picture here of their desire to be in a relationship with him and an alliance with him because things just turned south so bad. But they hadn't yet. So that's really important. Just like it was a problem regarding the incest of Rhaenys and Aegon, though, they were against him. Magor's polygamy was against church dictates, and he was going to get worse with that as well. He was going to marry three more people and do it in a really horrible way. But that also hadn't happened yet. That's going to be in our next episode. That won't, we won't even get to that today because... He, the next episode's going to be horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's going to start off pretty horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's Magor the Cruel, right? So yeah, this is the year 43, and Magor's reign was six years. This is only the second year of his reign. So while he's in the South, before he's fully established, they, Aegon and Reyna may not have even known that Magor was pretty successful down there, how it all was going. Either way, they made their move. 
They snuck into King's Landing in disguise. And there was no dragon pit yet. And the Red Keep wasn't finished. So this isn't like now where it's hard to sneak in places. This was a city under construction. These things weren't complete. Dragon, like I said, Dragon Pit wasn't even started, let alone finished. And the Red Keep wasn't finished. You know, it's not as locked down, tight security kind of thing. So they, they, get, they get into the city with some help, grab their dragons, fly out. And with their dragons, they're able to raise an army. It's like, okay, now we're a serious threat. Magor did not dally. He left Old Town quickly and presumably news would have arrived by Raven. And you wonder, like, did the Citadel, did they delay giving this news to him or did they rush it to him? You know, you wonder, does this room for some, some manipulation here? Uh, I mean, this is, this is the center of communications for Westeros. This is the Ravenry. Like, this is where they hand out the Maester's chain, link for Ravenry skill and, and where they're all trained. Yeah, it's, it's pretty important. Knowledge is power. That's no conspiracy. What, what they do with that knowledge, there's all sorts of conspiracy we could, we could imagine, some of which might actually be true, but the actual knowledge, that's, that's truth. So, I, but in this case, I can't see any, any reason for them to mess around too much. Magor's there. They just recommitted to him. You know, I think they would, they probably still wanted him to win at this point because, again, he wasn't as awful as he was going to be. So he, you wonder if the Hightowers supplied any troops for this. I'm guessing they didn't, or if they did, the troops never got involved because Magor flew north to, on Balerion. The troops couldn't have possibly kept up with him. So maybe they were marching to join him later. But the whole thing it's was really over. easy for them to say, like, yeah, we'll give you all the troops you want. Mm -hmm. They're not going to care anyway. Yeah, because the thing was over before they could have marched in there anyway. So they, even if they didn't help, even if they did help, they couldn't have gotten there in time to matter. Because Magor, again, not an idiot. He understood the scenario, especially when it comes to war. This is a guy that definitely understood battle and, and, and all that stuff. So he realized that Aegon needed to win a victory. He needed to have a win under his belt in order for people to take him seriously. There were a lot of lords on the fence that wouldn't have taken either side because they're just like, we have no idea who's going to win here. And they don't want to get caught in the middle. There's not really that. It's not that big a deal to sit out. Like, Magor isn't probably going to kill every single person that sat on the, on, the, on the sidelines. So a lot of people just sat back and were like, we're not doing anything. But if Aegon had won a victory, they would have joined him. And Magor knew that. So he was like, well, I'm not going to, I'm going to get to him as quick as possible and make sure he doesn't win a single victory so he can't bring any new houses on his side and just nip this in the bud quickly. And, and he's going to do that personally by flying Balerion into the heat of the action. So there was a conflict. And yeah, if there were high towers on the march to join him, which is entirely possible, yeah, they didn't get there in time because Balerion just killed Aegon and that was that. The war ended. By 44 AC, the following year, Amagor was firmly entrenched. And Cerise came to court. She moved back from Old Town to the Red Keep, which was only almost finished then. And she went and she, this would be her first experience living with the other queens. There'd be Tiana and Alice Haraway there. That super old High Septon who did all the things Megor wanted died because he was really old. And he was replaced by a man who came to be known as the High Lick Spittle. So this guy was even more of a patsy. <laughs> and the poor fellows in revolt were so unhappy with this choice is that they, in response to the naming of this man, they named their own High Septon, Septon Moon, an infamous guy who we've talked about in some of our Fire and Blood coverage in mock response. So, the, so they basically have like, 
a papal schism, the equivalent of that, where there's two popes out there, or the unofficial one and the, the chosen one of the of the, no, the chosen one of the nobility and the chosen of the, of the people or some people. Just anyway. ask the two popes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most ideal <laughs> form of yeah, the most ideal form of leadership. <laughs> two leaders. <laughs> so it had been a full year. The the, the amnesty for poor fellows and warrior sons was over. So you had they had a year to lay down their weapons, but clearly. The ones who hadn't laid them down by then weren't gonna. And Magor had already put out uh, the bounties, a gold dragon for a warrior's son, a silver for a poor fellow. Surely no one killed innocent people and claimed they were otherwise. <laughs> no, there's no way that happened. We didn't see that with dwarfs under Cersei and, and Tyrion, did we? No, that never happens. Yeah. The Red Dog of the Hills, Sir Joffrey Dog, another Joffrey here, was one of the key leaders of the faith militant uprising. And mostly he was active in the north, not the north-north like Winterfell, but like far north of Old Town, like the Golden Tooth area, north of the Golden Tooth. So more like in the Riverlands and part of the Westerlands. But he was powerful enough to have a lot of reach. And they began assassinating people. They began killing people on the road, people they saw as traitors, nobles that weren't pious enough. And one of these that they killed was Sir Morgan Hightower. They were like, you got away with that? No, you didn't. <laughs> they killed him. <laughs> they murdered that dude on the road. Not I, pardoned after not, all. He was pardoned by his brother, but not pardoned by the people, not by the faith militant. So that guy was killed. And he had been a former, you know, obviously commander of the warrior's son. So that was like, they clearly killed him for being a turncloak or in their mind, he was a, uh, yeah, he was a traitor. Now he, I don't know what his role was at this point. He clearly wasn't commander of the warrior's sons anymore. He may have just been, a knight of House Hightower, you know, which is pretty prominent anyway. But either way, that's a pretty big deal. They killed him, and you wonder, and only wonder what Lord Martin's reaction was to this. This wasn't far away. This was close. This was on the road from Old Town to the Honey Holt. The Honey Holt is the seat of, of the Beesberries. The Beesberries will have a, of course. a reasonable, yeah, right, a reasonably important role in the next episode, because Lord Breesbury, the one killed in House of the Dragon, that guy is Master of Coin for like, what, 50 years or something. So way he's Lord of, he's Master of Coin from way before the events of House of the Dragon start. And we know House of the Dragon starts 30 years before the war, almost 30 years. So they're going to have some issues later. Uh, Honey Holt will have issues with their, with their Lord at the, at the Old Town because of these, these clashes. Not to mention a knight of Honey Holt was among the warrior's sons slain by Magor when he had that famous trial of seven. Which, by the way, I didn't even mention as one of the reasons Magor had some claim to the throne. He won a trial by seven, saying, I'm the king now. Who's going to say otherwise? And the warrior's son said, we will. And he beat them. So, like, if you're <laughs> a, some faithful got to say, yeah. the gods have already spoken. <laughs> if you're devout enough to die rather than go to the wall, you got to be devout enough to accept the... Trial of the Seven, right? Like, yeah, so, so it's really a weird spot. Or do you pick and choose? It seems like everyone just picks and chooses. So you can see why there's issues between Honey Holt and the Hightower at this point, maybe, and, and, and maybe more issues later. So he's murdered on the road there, and that's like so far from the Golden Tooth. Like if you look at the map, like where Joffrey Doggett's men were is nowhere remotely near this. So that just goes to show how powerful the Faith Militant were and, and how many high-powered or important people were getting assassinated by them in this area. Like the roads weren't safe for, for a lot of people unless you really traveled in force. And 
so that's that's a pretty huge deal. And yeah, what did Martin do? Did he send men out to hunt down the killers? Probably did at least that much, but he may not have expected much result from it because these men just vanish into the hedges and forests and live in caves like the Brotherhood Without Banners. It just, it's hard to hunt them down. It's like chasing guerrilla fighters in Dorne. If you go off the beaten path, you're in their turf and all of a sudden you are subject to ambush and being in full plate mail is a disadvantage and all these just changes the theater of war. Like it's a whole different type of scenario. Magor actually relaxed his campaign against the faith because he was concerned with establishing his power and finishing the Red Keep and maybe planning the Dragon Pit, which got kicked off not long after the Red Keep, the same year. So he, he finished the Red Keep in the year 45. Later that year, he started the Dragon Pit, which he might have started even sooner. But remember, he killed all the builders of the, <laughs> of the Red Keep so they wouldn't <laughs> do the secrets. So they revealed the secrets, yeah. Which made it hard to, you know, find new builders. They're like, well, no, I don't want to work for Not only are there less builders <laughs> to find, the ones that are there are less experienced and more suspicious. Yeah. So. <laughs> now, less likely to kill them because there's no, there aren't these like secret passageways in the dragon, but they're not, they're, they're still like, why take that chance, you know? <laughs> so from afar, the high towers are like, this dude is just slowly getting worse and worse. He's slowly frittering away his authority. What he won by intimidation and, and outright violence, he's losing through intimidation and outright violence. <laughs> it's like, it's this, it is a two-edged sword and it's Blackfire, so it's a very sharp two-edged sword. <laughs> and it gave the High Towers reasons to maybe reconsider if they weren't already reconsidering this relationship with Magor because of the killing of the builders and the, the recurring, all the brutality against the faith, which just kept escalating and escalating. At this time, though, 45 AC, Cerise dies of a sudden illness, so they say. But no one believes it because apparently Magor ordered her tongue removed. And we know she was outspoken. And we know she didn't seem to be afraid of him like a lot of other people were. So she seemed brave, but, but apparently maybe, it went too, maybe she went too far here because he ordered her tongue removed, apparently, and one of the Kingsguard in the process of doing this, killed her by accident. Later, it's, we're told that this is, story was considered false later by later generations. Like, they're like, oh, this is just a way to blacken Magor's name. Like, blacken Magor's name? Like, how can you make it any blacker? Like, <laughs> it's like, it's like y'all remember the, the movie Spinal Tap when they wanted their album to be as black as possible? And yeah. they're like, people will say, how much blacker can this get? None. <laughs> None more black. You know, it's, like, it's so... Like, I was thinking about a metalocalypse. Yeah. Blacker than the blackest black. Yeah. And like, like, how can this be worse? So a different Kingsguard, the one who supposedly held her down while she was having her tongue removed, said, oh, she didn't die because of being stabbed. She died because of her shrewishness, which is like confirming it. Like you're confirming yeah. that she didn't die of an illness. You're confirming that Magor was tired of hearing her talk and had her killed because he's an asshole, you know? And, so that's probably what happened. And it doesn't, almost doesn't matter what really happened because it's, it's said, yes, later generations questioned that story, but in the moment, everyone believed it. Everyone believed that's what happened, which means the public perception was that Magor murdered Cerise Hightower. How can the Hightowers be like, oh, okay, that's, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Like, they no longer have their tie to him. That's their connection to Magor is, yeah, we... 
crowned you here, but we don't know. We no longer have a family connection to you. And you're falling apart here. <laughs> you're just like frittering everything away. You're blowing it. This is our out. This is our exit. Now, yeah. So there's no immediate reaction that we're told about from the high towers. If they had any soldiers at court or knights or whatever, got to think they would have come home. They were like, okay, well, that's that. We can't, we can't support this guy anymore. But they wouldn't have maybe wanted to make a big show about it because he's so violent and nasty and you don't want to like provoke him needlessly. Like the guy still has Balerion. <laughs> Wow, so that's that's where we're going to leave it for today because it's a, a turning point in the relationship with the High Towers and House Targaryen here in the early reign of the Iron Throne. It's going to completely change the picture, and then of course we're going to move into Jaehaerys' reign and all these other things. So, though the Faith Militant uprising is cited as beginning in 41 AC, which is before Maegor took the throne, Maegor took the throne in 42 AC. It would also continue after his death. So we're going to be covering that, the extended continuation of the faith militant after his death. And yeah, throughout all this, though, the heart of Westerosi faith in the Seven is still at Old Town. Remember, we're still a ways away from that shift happening where the heart of the faith is in King's Landing. King's Landing still isn't the largest city in the realm at this point, although it's getting closer and closer, and we don't exactly know when it passed. (laughs) but. Yeah. So I have so many questions. Were the High Towers starting to keep their distance? Were they more aggressive in there, distancing themselves from the high, from Magor? Where is it continued tightrope walk where they're like, well, we definitely don't want to piss this guy off. He still could come and burn the Starry Sept. Like there is nothing we could do if he did that. So they still have like a lot of pragmatic reasons to just take it lying down, even though these insults are, are hefty and they murdered a member of their family. Or he murdered a member of their family. They have a lot of influence too, and they aren't necessarily monoliths. You know, one of my thoughts is that they probably anything that's very public or visual or that they would expect Magor to be paying attention to, they just keep it like it is. But Magor might not understand like the building contracts and the trade routes and the taxes being collected, things that they can manipulate to peel back on, you know what yeah. I mean? To get less involved or even to work against the crown or pull into their own resources. Like, I guess these soldiers that we already have there, we'll just leave them. But hey, if someone gets sick, we're not sending any more soldiers. Mm. There we go. We're not going to fund this, the defense of this, this trade route. We're not going to send taxes from this spot anymore. Like any Little angle things. they could find yeah. that they think wouldn't get noticed, which would be a lot like the influence they have through the Macers and through the Septs and through the... the Trade and uh, they would have all the else. avenues to look for other options. They're like, they're like, who right. do we talk to? Well, exactly. whoever we want to. We've got everyone. <laughs> we can talk to anyone. Yeah. Like they have that's the thing. They have those lines of communication. Yeah, that's a great point. They can they can send a raven to the Starks if they want to talk about it. You know, they can send a you know, Iron Islands or something. Yeah, the Essos. You know, who knows? Yeah. Did you guys know Magor did this? Are you sure you want to send more troops for that? Yeah. Like, why don't you set up a trade route with us instead of King's Landing? We'll give you this bonus and you don't have to worry about Magor. Because if we're all yeah. together in this, even Magor and Blurian won't be enough. Like we can beat him if we're united in this. You know, he can't burn yeah. everyone, you know? And we don't necessarily even have to like overthrow him violently. We just have to wait it out. You know, just have to wait it out. He'll die eventually. Maybe someone voices him. Hey, not, not that we're condoning that, but hey, if it happens, <laughs> you know? That it all can give you some advice. <laughs> right. I know a thing or two about poisons. You're right. And and, and it's as it turns out, Magor's death is 
A mystery. Suspicious. Like, it's very suspicious. Yeah. We don't know what happened. It probably wasn't poison because, you know, you just found... And similar to that septum, lots of people have a motivation. Yeah, you know? absolutely. But yeah, so it's very interesting. But all, and, and consider the other side. Like, well, who, who, what side will they take? Will they, will they take... Right now, there is no side to take. Like, Jaharis isn't, isn't really in the available option. Jaharis isn't even the oldest living member of the other branch at this point. Male m- member of the other branch. There's Viserys, who was Magor's squire. That's the eldest after the Aegon who was killed. So Jaehaerys was third in line before his elder brother was killed riding Quicksilver. And then there's a whole other one in between them. Nagor, of course, is going to kill him too. But <laughs> that hasn't <laughs> happened yet. The Hightowers are in a tough position. They don't want to side with the Faith Militant. The Faith Militant killed Sir Morgan. They're not, like, excited about those guys either. Like, and plus they have no, like, noble clout and no money and any of that. It's not, it's not what the high towers are generally getting mixed up in in the first place. You'd think that rather than side with the faith militant, they would just step aside and side with nobody. But it is possible some elements of House Hightower, if not even the main elements, were secretly supporting the rebels. It's possible they preferred that to, you know, rock and a hard place. Maybe you got to pick someone, they thought. Maybe they supported both sides, like later instances of House Hightower or House Swan or other houses have done, like the Butterwells. Like, support both sides. That way we come Hedge your bets. Yeah, that's right. So that could have been the way they, they did. So yeah, as, as we wrap this episode halfway through Magor's reign, it should be said that things got much worse before they got better. But they did get better. So if we look back at these 45 years, we can assume the continued progress and prosperity of the city itself, even while these other things are happening. The city itself is probably doing pretty darn well since it didn't get burned and the Dornish incursion stopped, the Ironborn raids had stopped a while ago, the city was probably doing great other than that big scare of, of Magor. But that would have been pretty short term, all things all told, right? So uh, yeah, that's pretty good. And so they have room to do other things. An, ex- an example of which we'll see next episode as well, like naval exploration. That's going to be a part of, of next time. We'll get to think about other ways that might have come out. Other things like this is basically a preview of next week. The fall of Magor, the rest of Faith Militant's Rebellion, the Golden Age under Jaehaerys and Alessand, the passing of Lord Martin, the rule of Donald the Delayer, Hightower. Like I said, the seafaring thing, that's Eustace and Norman going with Alyssa Farman. The Shivers hits Old Town. Then we get to things like Otto Hightower and Viserys and Alicent and Brynden Hightower, Gwaine Hightower, Hobart Hightower, Lord Ormond. All that stuff. That should be good times. I'm looking forward to that. Power shifts more towards King's Landing and away from Old Town. The faith shifts more towards Old Town. You, I mean, towards King's Landing. You wonder if the High Towers were concerned about their influence waning a little bit. Maybe they did some moves to try to retain that. Yeah, you know, a lot of things up and under Jaehaerys, and then Viserys after him. So a lot of interesting stuff to come yet. We shall get on that next week couple of episodes I mentioned that are relevant to this one that you might want to consider listening to to stay involved. There is several of our fire and blood topics that are relevant to this one. I mentioned, I guess, the Shivers would be one. Our episode on the Red Kraken, which is a subscribers-only one, that came up as well, of course, as the the re-beginning of the old way in some some respects there. And I'm sure there's some other ones, but I'm spacing out on them at the moment. (laughs) Our full Dance of the Dragons coverage as well is worth mentioning. That's, of course, with Radio Westeros and is fully scripted. Yeah, so next week, we'll continue down the timeline and probably finish it off. I guess there's a chance that it's too much for one episode, but I think we'll be able to cover it. Famous last words. (laughs) Famous 
start of lots more words. Yeah. <laughs> lots, yeah. Famous mid-roll words. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> anyway, we'll deal with that. So thanks, everyone, for coming. Thanks if you watched live or if you're catching it afterwards, whether you consume it on YouTube or on one of the many podcast platforms that hosts it. We appreciate that. You can give us a, a like or a thumbs up or a subscription, voluntary subscription. That's, of course, one of the best ways to support us, but there's lots of ways to do that. Tell a friend. That's one of my favorite methods. You, as a person with friends, those friends value your opinion. So if you tell them to listen to us, well, that'll go farther than just about anyone else. I would think making that same request. Yeah. As well, thanks to Nina for the excellent notes. Lots of great thoughts that helped me sort through some of these difficulties. Lots of different things happening all at once. A lot of times it's hard to sort through all the different possibilities, especially with a fair amount of unknowns thrown into the mix. But I think we did a solid job here. I'm pretty pleased with the way it came out. Hope you are too. As well, thank you to those of you who support us financially. That's the best way to support, like I said. As well, thanks to Joey, Jesse, and Bran for the intro music, outro music, video intro, and all the various things that make our show seem more professional. Yes. And Michael Clarfell as well. The maps behind me that you see variations of over the years, it's usually this known world map, but we have other ones up from time to time. You can go to his site, claradox.de. That's K-L-A-R-A-D-O-X.de to get copies for yourself. Lots of different ones out there. And last but not least, thank you to The Bengineer for doing the sound quality management before he hands it over to me for the final editorial cuts and final version of the episode. Yeah. All right, everyone. That's our show. We'll see you next time for more. And you know what to do. In the meantime, Valar. Three weeks.